that he's going to lace my legs and I got shin guards. I was like, I'm going to spend four and a half minutes getting punched in the side of my head. And the kid's got three amateur fights. And I was like, I got 35 more fights than this kid. And he's just whipping me for four and a half minutes of the round. I was like, that's demoralizing. Well, it's like, well, you got 60 seconds to get over it and figure it out because he's coming back another round and he's not that tired because <laughs> he was laying on top of you the whole time and he's pretty good at that. So it's like, well, either you're going to break or you're going to figure it out. What's up, everybody? Thanks for coming back to the Pohada Podcast. As usual, check out at the Pohada Podcast and at Pohada Photography. Toss a five-star review on the show if you dig it. This is a show where we talk about jujitsu with jujitsu people, often black belts. This time around, my friends Gus and Nikita Kratsky were nice enough to let me borrow the couches at the Burnsville Martial Arts Academy to talk with Dan Moret after his wall work seminar. Dan's got a solid resume, UFC, LFA, Bellator, all that fancy stuff, but he's also got a lot of stories and personal experience and some cool current projects going on. So without further ado, my conversation with Dan Moret. If I cared a lot about learning to fight, my scheme of showing up to take photos would be really valuable. I absorb a lot of info and stuff like huh if i cared i'd go practice that <laughs> like, oh that's a hot tip i like that it's like a sneaky way to get all the information right i've been to two mario seminars one with dan hodger i tried to wriggle into a couple of machados but it didn't get there a lot of free unused information for me you, know? you just be storing it and then just like selling bootleg tutorials dvds <laughs> there we go from kind of far away but now we're cooking yeah is this like the old iPhone? 90s movie bootlegs <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. bring the camera exactly. into the movie theater <laughs> that's exactly what i'm thinking all right i'm gonna start it with a quote play to the edge of the rules don't cheat i'm not gonna eye gouge i'm not gonna bite him but we are in a fist fight who said that I said that. You said that. I did say that. Tell me what that means. That means that there are rules in place, but this is a, a different kind of a sport where it is still a sport, but it's a fight. It's a different thing than other sports. And there aren't many sports where someone means you great bodily harm. And when that is the case, then you better play up to the edge of the rules. And uh, I think that's, if you're not pushing the limits in a bunch of different ways, not just as far as the rules go, but pushing the limits, you're not going to find success. And you got to push the limits and the boundaries a little bit. And playing with the edge of the rules happens to be part of that. What were you talking about specifically when you said that? I don't remember. Uh, well, I was <clears throat> talking about we, we were making an angle there against the fence and kind of landing a shot that the guy doesn't get to see. And maybe that one touches the side of his ear and maybe it kind of hits him in the back of the head. And, uh, you know, that's up to the referee's discretion and the guy who's taking that shot, maybe that's his fault for looking the wrong way. Yeah, don't look the wrong way. Yeah, if you're in a fist fight, you probably want to keep your eyes on the opponent. It seems like good advice. I'm assuming philosophically some of that is deliberately bumping up against the fact that, like, sometimes fights aren't sports. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it goes along with I, I do a lot of self-defense and other um, training and teaching, too, where it's like, hey, listen, sometimes there's not rules. And sometimes guys are going to break the rules, you know, and there's always a little fine line in that. 
And that was kind of like you said, you, you, you said the quote and it's, you know, I'm not going to deliberately cheat or do anything that's malicious. You know, I'm not biting people in there or, or gouging eyes, but like, Hey man, if I gotta, you know, hold the fence for a quick second to stop a takedown and then continue on fighting, like, oops, might happen. You know, doing something illegal to hurt somebody and, and that's a, a little different story, like I said, but there's a fine line to be, to be waved there. And sometimes it's a little bit of a squiggly line, I think. Yeah. The other guy would do it too. Sure. So. <laughs> uh, that's true of all sports though. Like, oh yeah. Like playing on the offensive line, you referenced offensive linemen. The trick is to not, not that you're not going to hold. It's that you're going to not get caught holding. Mm-hmm. Same kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I mean, football, they say play up to the whistle, you know, and you're going to hit guys as hard as you can hit them legally. All right. Uh, no head contact, but like, man, I'm sure going to drive my head into his chest as hard as I can. Mm-hmm. Well, your intent kind of is to hurt that other guy so he can't continue to play that game. I don't want to injure that guy so he doesn't have a career anymore, but it'd be nice if their star running back wasn't in for the rest of the game. That'd be good. <laughs> you know, he can play next week against whatever other team. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, then we conceptually also talked about the wall work specifically being a third part of the fight game because everybody thinks wrestling and groundwork and everybody thinks stand-up. Uh, is that a pretty common concept at this point when uh, people are talking about training like philosophically? Yeah, I think so. And especially, I mean, all the higher-level places and gyms and people that are are really into the game and, and, and high-level in the stuff are figuring that out that, hey, there's a whole other element to this that you have to be aware of and be good at. Um, I kind of reference Randy Couture being the first guy that was like really known for being good at it and could win fights just by putting a guy on the fence and the other guy not really understanding how to use it um, and, and to be successful there. And like, well, hey, if this is foreign to the other guy, that's the same as, hey, I'm taking down a kickboxer mm-hmm. or I'm standing up with the wrestlers. Like, well, the guy could be a wrestler and a kickboxer, but he has no idea what it's like to be pushed up against the fence. Well, now he's out of his element in his game, and he's worrying about his footwork and how he's standing. He's trying not to fall down or whatever, and he's not worrying about offensively scoring against me. Right, and I think wouldn't you say that the the second piece you brought up with that of like your 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 goal is to bully them, particularly it seems like when you've got a wall or a fence to work with, isn't that the fourth dimension then, like the psychological game? Yeah, yeah. I've got stand up. I've got groundwork. I've got wall or fence stuff. And then underlying all of that is I'm trying to get you to fuck up. Yep. Yeah, there's mental and physical parts to it. And then it's a psychological thing, like I said, and there's not a lot of guys who are in combat sports. You're not used to being bullied like that. You know, you're kind of a tough guy or a tough girl, and you're not used to being in a position where someone is bullying you, and it kind of throws you off. It's a different thing. Like I was saying in the in the training there and in the seminar, you know, uh, if, if Gus is kicking me, or he's punching me or he's trying to choke me or whatever. Like I'm used to that. That's normal. But if he's just like shoving me around and like folding me in half and like doing all this, I was like, Oh, this is different. Like I'm not used to being handled like I'm a child and that's demoralizing to guys. And it's a weird thing to see really tough guys kind of break in that sense where it's like, Hey, this is different. This is not, I'm not used to this kind of hard. It's mentally hard. And it's like, guys will get real frustrated. And that's when people start to make mistakes is when they get frustrated or angry, like, Hey, I'm getting embarrassed here. He's just shoving me against the fence. I'm like bouncing off it and he's like beating me up. Oh, this is kind of a different thing. This is weird. They don't like that. And then they start to make mistakes. They're like, oh, I got to get this back. I better swing real big. 
oh, that's when you duck under for a takedown or whatever else. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, well, thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, pissing off their ego is almost worse than making them tired. Like you, you make mistakes when you're tired, but when you're feeling edgy and insecure or embarrassed because you're being manhandled, that, that then you're really going to fuck up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, guys want to get that one back for sure. <laughs> that Does that tap into the idea that uh, – the difference between losing a fight and getting beaten in a fight. Yeah. Yep. And guys, especially guys that want to get bullied and beat up. It's embarrassing. You know? Oh, it's embarrassing. And it's hard, you know, and that's, uh, I've had my fair share of wins and losses. You know, I've lost fights before. I've lost, I got choked unconscious in a fight. I never tapped out, but I got choked unconscious. I've been knocked out. I was like, but you've never seen a fight where I just got my ass kicked. I never just got beat up. Where I was like, oh, he shouldn't be in there with that guy. You know, there's some fights where you watch and go, this guy's just getting manhandled the whole time. He has no business in there with that guy. There's a different level there. And so I think that's a different thing when guys are like, man, if you can just kind of bully somebody or beat him up and like, oh, he's just, he's picking them apart on the feet and he takes them down. He's smashing them there too. And the guy's just battered and beating his head's punched in. He's got black eyes and he's cut and, you know, he just looks worn out. It's a different thing. Like, whoa, he's getting manhandled. You know, Khabib was one who did that. He's like, that guy doesn't look like he has any business being in there against this guy. He has mm-hmm. no answers, you know, and that's, it's just a different kind of a thing. You know, guys aren't used to that. Guys look to lose, you know, whatever. I'll lose. Particularly if you're, if you're on TV, you're on the show. It's been a while since you've been outmatched more than likely. Yeah. So like the, the psychological tools might be even more profound the higher up I go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, guys are usually mentally stronger, but it's mm-hmm. also kind of a bigger fall for them when that thing that thing breaks where it's like oh okay if you're a a lower level you know even a lower level professional fighter well if you're in a good room you're probably getting whooped half the time you know uh, down in our room uh, at fight ready where it's like hey these guys are are good guys in the lfa they're undefeated they're six and oh they're eight and oh whatever well half their rounds they're going against guys who are in the ufc and they're getting torched where uh, they're used to losing and getting beat, and it's part of it. And the guy in the UFC is like, well, he might only have to deal with that some of the time in training, but he's not used to getting just bullied the whole time. Where if that happens to one of those guys, you'll see guys break, and they, they can't handle it. Some guys can, and those are you know those are the guys you see persevere and are you know, the great guys who can really get handled and beat, and then they can come back still. That's a whole different kind of guy. You know, that's a tough, that's a tough guy. There's a lot of goods who can take damage, you get beat up and all that. Well, that's great. But to be like mentally tough where you're getting absolutely handled and torched and you're exhausted and beat and you can take a couple deep breaths, suck it up and go, I better change my game plan and get back after it. Well, that's a tough guy to me. This is the idea of like the shark tank thing. Mm-hmm. Like even if, even in a low level room, if you're constantly on the mat and everybody else is rotating in and out. It, it, you're, you're building that fourth dimension for people. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot of times getting ready for fights even down there. It was like, I'll lose rounds to amateurs. Or it's like, yeah, I'm tired. Or he's bigger than I am. Or, you know, he just gets at a position, especially, you know, down at Fight Ready, we're, we're fortunate to have a lot of guys. So I got amateurs on my team, a good kid, Austin Clayton, who's coming up. He's a welterweight, and he wrestled at ASU, where it's like, <laughs> if I screw up and he gets me down, He's going to lace my legs, and I got shin guards. I was like, I'm going to spend four and a half minutes getting punched in the side of my head. And the kid's got three amateur fights. And I was like, I got 35 more fights than this kid. And he's just whipping me for four and a half minutes of the round. I was like, that's demoralizing. 
Well, it's like, well, you got 60 seconds to get over it and figure it out because he's coming back another round and he's not that tired because <laughs> he was laying on top of you the whole time and he's pretty good at that. Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, either you're going to break or you're going to figure it out. It's like, or you're going to have another bad five minutes. And then after that, you're probably going to have a worse five minutes because you got to do three rounds today one way or another. So you better get over it. Like, yeah, you mm-hmm. just lost to a amateur kid who's 23 years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that happens, you know. And that's a good thing we kind of talked about at the end of the, the seminar. There's like, you better find out in the training room first. You don't want your first hard day to be when it really counts. That's a bad way to experience it is when it's live and people are there and watching. You can lose in the room. Who cares? You know, there's only one day that really matters. You can go a whole fight camp and do 50 rounds. It's like, well, there's only three of them that really count. Just show up on that day and do your best there, you know. Especially since you convinced your friends to buy tickets. Yeah, yeah. Please do good. Or at least finish the fight or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Somehow somebody thought it was a good idea to put you on TV to do it. Yeah. Like, oh, man, I probably should show up today. <laughs> There's a disadvantage of like the streamableness of the modern world is my first MMA fight was something people could sit at home and watch on quote-unquote TV as I get fucking embarrassed. Yeah. It's not good. No. How long have you been at this stuff there, Dan? Uh, man, the first one was... 2007 first one what first mma fight what about before that um i started wrestling when i was in fifth grade you know i uh fortunately did not make the traveling basketball team probably the best thing that ever happened to me same (laughs) i uh yeah what a useless skill past about 11th grade right well right you know uh unless you're um you know, seven feet tall or whatever, mm-hmm. you're probably not getting a college scholarship and Mm-mm. you're probably not going to help you at any time unless you're playing street ball for money and you're hustling people like that, mm-hmm. I guess maybe. But otherwise... Uh, Odds are you'll do an intramural, you know, league after like anthropology class in first year of college and that's about it. Yeah. Bragging rights at the YMCA, <laughs> I guess. Um, yeah. That's, that you know, you learn how to wrestle and you, you got a life skill, you know, it can help you out. Uh, hopefully you don't have to use it if you're not, you know, pursuing a combat sport, but mm-hmm. it is a life skill to, to have, you know? So I was very fortunate. My, uh, my stepdad said, Hey, uh, you know, the junior high wrestling coach used to live above me at my store. You know, I know him. Why don't you try wrestling? Well, that'd be cool. I did that. And, uh, Fell in love with it right away. You know, the practice was fun. And then <clears throat> won the first match, I remember. I went to the tournament and won the first match. I was up 13-0 and then pinned the kid. And then the second match, I was getting smoked. And then I got poked in the eye. This kid was playing past the rules. Poked me in the eye. And he... Uh, he got caught. Yeah, the they, they saw him do it. Well, okay. and it was just like, oh, time out for a second. And then he ended up smoking me and beating me. Uh, the second match, you know, I'm crying. I got poked in the eye. It hurt. And then I think I won the next one or lost. And then, you know, you go kind of round robin style and whatever. I got third or fourth place or something. But, uh, you know, I came home and won a couple, lost a couple and, and had a trophy and, uh, got to school and had a half my eye was red. So if I looked all the way to one side, I had this red eye and my buddies all thought that was really cool. So I was like, oh, man, this wrestling's pretty sweet. I got to, like, you know, kind of beat up on some kids. And, like, I got this like, red eye. Like, I'm a gladiator. This, yeah, I'm a tough guy. This is cool. Um, so, you know, I, I fell in love with it. and uh, That's why you like, you're, you're talking about bullying here today. Your first two matches were you bullying, running up the score and then pinning him. 
And then your next match was you getting bullied. Getting bullied. So it's like your earliest combat experience is <laughs> <Yeah>. just bullying. <laughs> well, I got a brother that's two years older than me. So, yeah, yeah. I see, yeah. yeah. Uh, now I teach it in the most, the nicest, most. Uh, just inside the rules. Just inside the rules. Bully kids just enough so that they get an idea that they got to toughen up, but don't break their spirit or, you know, <laughs> not too much. Uh, you know, we and obviously working with any young kids, it's kind of about being anti-bullies, you know. I uh, work with my little nephew, got him hitting the bag and stuff, and he wrestles now. And, hey, you get to use this stuff, you know, only here at, at the gym. You're only going to punch the bag. You're not going to hit your little sister and do that kind of thing. And I said, you started wrestling now, and now you can punch and hit the bag a little bit. And I go, this makes it really hard for kids to bully you. And I said, you don't get to use it to be a bully because then nobody likes you, and that's not a good thing to be. But I said, but you get to not get bullied because you're doing this. So it's a big responsibility, and I'm teaching you this. And he doesn't realize the value of you know the private lesson I'm giving him. I, I'm gonna should maybe make a log, and he'll yeah, owe me later on. Yeah, keep an Excel sheet for yeah. sure. Yeah, <clears throat> you, yeah, you owe me ten grand for those private lessons I taught you <laughs> for the last however many years. You're a little late on payment, so <laughs> yeah. with interest, interest, it's a little different. Yeah, we're looking at eighteen thousand. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's uh, yeah, those my my first kind of experiences wrestling when I was uh, real young. Got into it, <clears throat> fell in love with it. Did that all through high school, and then. Um, you know, I just I wanted to still compete and do something, and I, I was a good wrestler in high school, but not great. Um, so I didn't wrestle in college or anything, and I was doing slowly or slow pitch softball, summer league stuff, and and doing that, and we were competitive in it, you know, and however competitive that gets, you know what I mean? It's all relative, I guess. <laughs> like, it's like accidentally tongue in cheek. Well, yeah, some competitive slow pitch. Yeah, <laughs> beer league softball, <laughs> but it's Division One though, so you know, it's it's That's really real. it's important. Um, there is no division two, but it is. <laughs> May have been colored, place you know, whatever. Your, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, we, uh, you know, it, it, it just wasn't kind of filling that, that gap in that space. And, uh, so yeah, at the time I was putting up chain link fence with a buddy of mine who I wrestled with in high school and we got these gigs good doing down in Iowa and they were, um, putting up the wind towers they'd have the whole wind farm down there in these uh farmers fields so what they did that equipment so big they would just hey they paid the farmers not to plant the crops that year they would just drive the equipment straight across the fields and try not to zigzag through the little county roads and then we were doing chain link fence but at this time they just paid us to put up this farm fence super easy for us right we're just putting up three strings of barbed wire this is easy um and the company that was subcontracting us big companies like man you guys are doing great this is awesome you guys are way ahead of schedule you're doing good we're gonna take you out and we're like dude we're putting a barbed wire fence this is as easy as it could get you know we're used to putting up nice fence you know we've done prisons and all kinds of ornate you know nice ones around people's house and stuff so they took us out uh down there in iowa you know i was only 20 years old and you know somehow found myself inside the bar having a few beers uh those things happen in iowa and they happen to have these uh, fights down there. And, of course, like everybody, especially a 20-year-old kid, after a few of those beers, I'm watching these fights going, man, I could take these guys. I could take a couple of these guys. And so the other dudes down there were, you know, hey, why don't why don't you do it then? Why don't you do it? If you're so tough, you should get in there. Well, they had these fights there about every two months. And we'd do kind of gig work. It'd be We'd be there for a week, then back for two, then down mm -hmm. there for a week. I was like, you know, I think I'm going to go ahead and – and do these fights i should i just do it what the heck if i get beat up i get beat up and uh, shoot if anybody back home asks me questions i'll just say i fought six guys at the bar you know whatever mm -hmm. <laughs> i'll just make up a story 
and so I, I got my first fights down there, you know, no, no corner guy, no nothing like that. I just showed up. I was training in my dad's basement. I had a heavy bag and a, a weight bench and that was the training I was doing and, and won five fights in a row down there doing that, just going down there and just swinging hard, you know, I could wrestle and I'm tall and left-handed. So that was all I needed. <laughs> Apparently I was just going in there swinging hard and giving it my all. And, uh, I won five fights and then happened to hear a, an ad on the radio actually for mixed martial arts training in my hometown at a Taekwondo school. And I was like, no way. There's Where's a, this at? There's other people doing this down in Mankato. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a great guy down there, Bill Huff, who owns Southern Minnesota martial arts. He, uh, as an awesome dude, he, he owned the Taekwondo school and was letting us train out of there and literally just said, you know, he's like, Hey, listen, I do Taekwondo and I don't know anything about this stuff. So I don't want to coach you or do any of that stuff. He goes, I'll just let you guys use the room. You guys can train and do whatever you want. You don't have to pay or anything. You guys can just do that thing out here. I was like, that was really cool. So I went in there and uh, that was where I first met Gus was down at Bill Huff's place, Madison Avenue. He had an old location, little tiny room, literally about as big as the four seats we're sitting in right now doing this podcast. I mean, it was like a 12 by 12 mat space. And I walked in there and uh, Gus was in there. Um, this other guy, Josh Janowski, who's a big wrestler guy. Um, and this other kid, Adam Michael, who Bill goes, hey, you're about size of this guy. Adam, he's one of our best guys. He's real good. And he's like, Why don't, I want you to meet him. Come over here. And he says, hey, Adam, come here. And he turns around and says, Adam Michael, who... I happen to have known since kindergarten. <laughs> I had no idea he was doing this too. Hmm. And he, he, he was literally uh, a, gr a great guy and a super nice kid. Uh, growing up a little bit uh, on the strange side, you know, didn't have a whole lot of buddies or nothing was a little different. Um, but we were, we were friends. I knew him since wherever, you know, his mom had invited me over for his birthday and stuff like that. I spent the night at his house. I mean, I was a, Two-time captain of my high school wrestling team. I was four times All-City. You know, I was a decent wrestler. And Adam was really a, literally a JV wrestler the whole time. Even as a senior and stuff, he never made the varsity lineup. Mm -hmm. And so it come, he turns around and says, Adam, I said, this is your best guy? <laughs> the JV Adam? <laughs> Adam, I said, Adam, hey, how, Adam. How, how's it going, dude? How are you? And so we started training, you know, and I was you know, kind of whipping these guys and doing it. And he's like, man, Bill goes, God, you're pretty good at this. You've been doing this. He's like... We should get you a fight. We we get you amateur fight. We got these fights gonna come here. And I was like, "What are amateur fights?" I said, "I already fought five times." He said, "Oh yeah, you got to do amateur fights first. And I go, "Well, I don't know. They didn't do the say that in Iowa. Well, at the time, Iowa didn't even have a commission or nothing. Yeah, they weren't like even I, sanctioned. No, yeah. I was showing up with no blood work, and I was fighting whatever hairy chested farm boy they put in front of me. Literally, you're on a bathroom scale, and you'd weigh in, and they'd everybody, and then the bar owner and the guy who owned the cage and stuff would come in and kind of just go, uh." you and he'd point at somebody versus uh you and he pointed somebody else and you go well how much does that guy weigh and how many fights has he got just ho holding up his fingers <laughs> yeah. these are about the same they're yeah. about the same size eh, whatever that looks good i'll take the red-headed guy versus that dude and so they just picked whoever and uh back when things were pure back when it was just honest. yeah it was yeah. just good old real fights you didn't know who you're fighting until you showed up <laughs> and a lot of times and even then when we had the fights so they you know they're like hey we'll give you these fights that was when i had the first one in mankato in our hometown and we showed up they said hey they're going to give you this name i remember the kid's name it was uh, adam schmicky we're going to fight this kid 
Um, Shout okay, out to cool. Adam Schmicky. Adam, Adam Schmicky, wherever you're at, man. Uh, <laughs> sorry we never got the tangle. Um, he was who I was scheduled to fight. And we get there and they say, well, hey, he was 148 pounds or whatever. It was the same day weigh-ins was what we used to do. Brutal Genesis was the, the organization still around down in Iowa, uh, now run by a guy, Rick Tasser. used to be run by uh, Nick Gamps, who unfortunately passed away. Um, old promoter. Uh, always did great by us. You know, I, I got nothing bad to say about that guy. He was a, a good guy and, and did great by us in Mankato. He brought fights to our hometown and, um, you know, even let us make a little coin as amateurs, which you're not supposed to do, but whatever. Um <clears throat> they said, oh, hey, this kid you're supposed to fight weighs 148 or whatever, and you're 160. Uh, you're closer to this guy. He's 164. Will you fight this guy? Well, of course, they say this to you right in front of the guy. Mm, and yeah. so you're looking at him in the face. And I was like, well, what are you going to do? Say no. I want the little guy. Huh? <laughs> yeah, I'll take the little dude. Well, no, they had him, somebody else, uh, him cutting a little weight. And so he'd fight some other guy who was also smaller. Mm. So it just switched right there. And so that was the first fight I had down at the uh, Cato Ballroom in Mankato, the first local one I had in Minnesota anyway. And, of course, you know, they switched it like that. This kid didn't know I already had five fights, and he Is weighed a little bit. Johnson? Evan Johnson, who, uh, man, he was a, a, a kind of a specimen for an amateur fighter and a kid. He was a big, strong dude from Wisconsin. And then they told us, well, he's a blue belt. Well, at the time, it was like, what? He has a belt? <laughs> I don't even think there was a blue belt in Mankato at that time. No. Because no. Sean hadn't even arrived yet. No, there wasn't color. But we had to, back when we, Mankato was like, you had to drive to find jujitsu. You had to go an hour. You were going to the Twin Cities or to Rochester mm-hmm. to find somewhere that was like, well, people knew jujitsu. And most of the time, it wasn't even black belts who you'd find. It was like, no, this guy's a blue belt or he's a purple belt. So, like, oh, this kid's a blue belt and he was a good high school wrestler. He's a good, and he was built, big dude. So that was the first one I had in Mankato. It was pretty funny because they have a picture of me in the paper uh, after that fight, and they're kind of describing my whole fight in the walkout. And they're like, oh, he danced to the ring and stopped to cheer on the crowd and pump up the crowd and all this. And I was like, mm-hmm. literally on the way to the cage, when I stopped to what they said was pump up the crowd, I was like, I had to convince myself, to like, nah, man, we're going to win. I was like, no, we're going to win. <laughs> we're going to find a way. I was like, one way or another, we're going to beat this guy. Cause I'm looking at him and he's under the lights in the cage and you know, at the time, yeah, this kid's got pecs and shoulders and the whole nine. Like I'm a skinny little twig. I'm just a kid. And I'm like, that's a man. I'm like, Oh boy. And I mean, I fought some big guys in down in Iowa, but they were just like, you know, kind of average looking dudes. And this was like a built guy. I was like, Oh boy. I was like one way or another going to win. Back in the day you had to, they had a weird thing in Minnesota with two submissions. We had to submit a guy twice in one fight to win. Yeah. If they, you made the opponent tap out, it was just the end of the round. A 10-8 round. 10-8 round. 10-8 round. And then you would get the minute off and start again. They had a deal because guys were a lot of wrestlers were shooting in. Guys would get guillotined. Fights were over in 20 seconds. So they're like, well, then no one's really getting experience here. What if we do two submissions? And so you could submit twice. Well, it never ended up biting me, but I mean, I'm sure there was somebody who gets a submission and then the second round comes, and the guy hits him with a punch. He falls down the wrong way, and maybe not even unconscious. The ref stops it. It's like, well, the other guy wins now by TKO, and you had already submitted the guy. Yeah, I won earlier. I had already yeah, won. Now I lost. If you weren't there, I would have killed him. <laughs> I had a submission. He was going to die. And then you stopped the fight and gave him 60 seconds, and then he gets a win. Is that like 
could you equate that to like funky rules at different periods in the UFC because like people really just didn't understand elements of grappling well enough? This lasted for about two years, I think, maybe maybe two and a half years in Minnesota. But mm-hmm. by I think by like oh nine of like November oh nine is when they changed the rules back. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I'm sure somebody that must have happened, and someone complains like, "Well, hey." I won the fight, and then you give this guy a chance, and he gets the win. Um, and then, and so I fight him. I ended up submitting him twice in the fight. I guillotined him twice, and of course, the you know again playing to the edge of the rules kind of thing. <laughs> if there's a two submission rule, and I know I got to beat this guy two times, how quick do you think I was to let go of that choke when he started tapping? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. No, no, no. The ref had to pull me. Yeah. Literally, put, he said, stop, 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 stop. And I was like, nuh-uh. If, if, <laughs> if he if goes out, the, he goes out. This is the round over. Y'all it, let me know when the round's over. Yeah, I was like, not letting go until uh-huh. you pull. He had to literally pull me. I'm like, I hope he's out. And he was conscious still. I was like, oh, no. Oh, he's mad. I got to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, of course, he's like, oh, man, I'm tired. I got to re- get this guy down. He shoots again. I guillotined him twice. Uh and won the fight. And so that always worked crazy. It worked out for me um, in the amateur fights. And people used to give me a lot of grief because they're like, oh, he's got all these amateur fights. He's, you know, he's a hometown. He's a local guy. He's just trying to like sandbag it and win all these fights. Well, most of those fights were 30 or 45 seconds. So it wasn't as if I was gaining tons of experience. Yeah. I was like, hey, I'm trying to figure this out. And we got an amateur team, no real professional coaches or nothing. I'm just trying to get experience here. It was like, well, I get harder training during the week than this. This was the easiest day I had all week. You know, I just beat up the heavy bag there. It took me 30 seconds. So I had 14 amateur fights and 19 finishes because I submitted a bunch of guys twice or submitted them and then knocked them out. And you had like seven total minutes of fight time. And yeah, literally, you know? yeah, super short. Um, yeah, I mean, even the, the second one in Minnesota, it almost – well, I almost had to quit because we were in Albert Lee and we went down there oh. from Mankato and we went like 6-0 and and smashed all these guys. We had a good team. You know, we had a great coach down there, Ray White, who's our Muay Thai coach who trained up here in the cities at the college group, was, you know, knew Greg Nelson stuff at the academy. Like he trained really, really hard. And so we were in way better shape than everybody else. We trained super hard on the pads. Yeah, we trained like professionals. We had a professional training regimen as amateurs, and we were a bunch of wrestlers and grapplers who had a great kickboxing coach. So we had a really, really good little program there for not having a program at all. Out of the Taekwondo school, we had a high-level Muay Thai coach and a guy who just made us crush the pads over and over and over and would just get us dog tired. And then we would do crazy weightlifting circuits and, and wrestle each other like dogs. And so we were in great shape. And that one in Albert Lee, again, same day weighing thing. This kid's like 150 pounds with his jeans and sweatshirt and stuff on. And I'm 160, like cutting weight. And he goes to punch me and I duck it. I slam him, pass his guard, mount him. And I'm just wailing this kid's head in. He's literally, you know, half concussed. He's just, and he taps from strikes. So they give him the 60 seconds, <laughs> regain himself. The second round, he comes out. That's playing to the edge of the rules right there. He baby. tapped to the strikes like, hey, I can get a start over. <laughs> yeah, like, on. restart, I'm I down. This up. isn't going good. Yeah. yeah, and he's like, I'll get a second <laughs> Very chance. Very smart. So he tries to throw a head kick, and I block it and then, like, catch it. And like I'm saying, he was, like, uh, he was rail thin. He was probably 6'1", 6'2", and 150 pounds. And so I caught the kick and, like, had his leg up on my shoulder and grabbed my other arm around his head. So I literally have him in like a, you know, a Lex Luger Lex torture Luger, rack yeah, yeah. like Flexing position. It. 
And I go to like do a hand clean with him. I lift him up over my head and he pushes his feet off the fence at the same time. And I turn Uh-oh. and spiked him on his head, Ugh. you know, like really kind of unintentionally. I was just trying to slam him, but he kicked the fence at the same time. And I slammed him and probably the best takedown has ever happened to me. And all of them made referee Joe Phipp spears me. <laughs> but this was after we landed. And this is one of those things that, I, uh, you know, I'll unfortunately I always have this memory in my head. I slam him down. He lands, and I posture up to punch him before anything happens, right? It's just all one kind of sequence. I posture up, go to punch him in the face. I look down, and his eyes are open. He's a skinny little uh, Hispanic kid, and his eyes are open, but his eyes are rolled all the way back, so it's just white. Mm. So all I see is this, like, skull, and I, I, you know, I'm already in the motion of hitting him, so I punched him right between the eyes, square. He's already unconscious. I smash him right between the eyes, cut him wide open. Joe Phipps spears me, tackles me off. Stop, stop, stop. I'm like, I'm stopped. I'm good. And he laid there like in the weirdest body position, like he should have a chalk outline around him. Yeah. And he was there for a whole minute, not moving, not making a sound. And after a minute, he starts going. And I just sunk. I was like, yeah, was oh, my scary goodness, I paralyzed this guy. Yeah. I thought I broke his neck. I said, no way. I paralyzed this guy. I said, I'm done. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do this anymore, you know? it's Again, it's a thing like, hey, I, I mean you harm. I'm going to hurt you, but I don't want to injure anyone. I don't want to ruin someone's life for yeah. what, you know? Like, I'm not a malicious guy. Like, I like to compete, and I like mm. combat sports, but like, I just, my heart sunk. I was like, no way. I just ruined this guy's life. Yeah. I want to stop you for the next few minutes, not for the rest of your life. Yeah. yeah. Uh, thankfully, you know, the kid was okay. And he, he came back and guy was, you know, several minutes later, I'm still in the back and the people are like, hey man, you know, stuff happens. It's all right. Because they can just tell, like, I'm not happy about winning. You know, I was like, this is bad. I don't want to do this anymore. Let's get out of here. And uh, thankfully he came back in the locker room and then he wanted to shake my hand and he almost fell into me. And I had to, like, catch him. And I was like, dude, you got to go sit down, dude. And, like, I don't know how that guy's doing or if he's okay now. I I wish him all the best. I hope he's doing well. But it was like, oh, boy, I don't think you should ever fight again. This was not good. So, thankfully, he was okay. But, you know, one of those deals where it's like, that two submission thing was like, dude, the guy was already concussed. Yeah. And I was half out of you already beat this guy. Oh, I was literally just pounding his head into the mat. And somehow he got his hand up to, like, tap. And I was like, okay. 60 second break well what people didn't realize too is it's like if that happened because that same night i had a really good oppor- a good fight then that was when i fought tino that night and i had this guy tap out the strikes in like 30 seconds and he just refused to come back out for the second round and i was like oh you can do that okay cool like and it's kind of one of those things where it's like in hindsight maybe that would have been better in some of those situations had that been the case with some of these guys if they would have known that but it's comes back to again like we're all young we're all full of piss and vinegar we're like fuck it let's just go like yeah so. it reminds me of the boxing thing like you were roughly out cold but you managed to stand up and make some eye contact so they're gonna exactly. let you go get bludgeoned in the head even more yeah, yeah. It's like i realize that's how we've done it but guys this does not seem like a smart looked like a win is mm-hmm. what that was we don't need a 10 count we need to call the fight yeah. yep yeah, and it Just was a, a chance for more brain damage. Yeah, and so it was the same kind of thing with those rules. So thankfully, they they switched it. You know, eventually, it was like, hey, this doesn't make any sense. You know, it made sense in a 
in a boardroom discussion one time. Yeah. Real quick, they said, hey, how really can we fix this it? quick 10-second fight thing? Well, we'll do two submissions. Well, <laughs> that's twice as many opportunities for guys to get really hurt bad. Right. Especially if the same guy's catching the takedown and the strikes. Like He was damaged already. Yeah. That's why he lost, technically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's strange. It is nice to see a lot more unification with the different commissions coming into fruition now, but it's still kind of a hot mess. I mean, you go places like Texas where they still do the old rules setting and you're looking at like the one hand down or two hands down kind of thing. It's like play within the rules. How many people played at the edge of the rules with that part of the mixed martial arts game? Yeah. Like hands down? Nope, 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 nope. Like, yep. Well, and I think a lot of that now, of course, they made those rules to get fights sanctioned, right? So we got to take some of this stuff out and we got to make certain things not legal and legal, you know, and then John McCarthy talks a lot about like 12, six elbow and stuff. He's like, well, you know, these commission people are like watching late night ESPN and they're doing karate, breaking boards down with with the elbows. And so they make that illegal. It's like, it's not any more damaging than any other elbow. It's like, I can literally grab you by the back of the head pull your head down, knee you in the face. Eight times in a row. And that's fine. I can spin and heel kick you right in the mouth, but I can't like elbow you straight down while I'm sitting on top of you. Like, it's the thing. So uh, it'd be nice if they would kind of redo a lot of that stuff. I think they should redo the rules. I like the rules they have in Japan. I think you should be able to hit people when they're down, kick them in the head. I think you should be able to knee to the head when people are down. For sure. I think it changes a lot of the positions and guys can't hang out. Again, they play the edge of the rules, right? Oh, I shoot a bad takedown. I just lay in this turtle in the garden. It's like, well, that changes a front headlock position big time. Now you can't just lay there and hang out. You're in real, real danger now if I can knee you on the top of your head mm-hmm. and guys can get away with it. And, you know, they, there's not crazy weird injuries over in Japan and in the Philippines and stuff and Ryzen and in one where they have those rules, you know, so I think they should have those those should be the rule sets where then there's not this weird gray area of like, ah, is he down? Is he up? Is he down? Is he not? Oh, what, what's the difference if his, his fingers are touching the ground and he's still up on his feet and now I can't knee him in the head? <laughs> well, what's the difference? Literally nothing. He just can barely touch the ground or he can't. Like the, the difference of two inches on his hand being able to touch the floor or not doesn't change the you know impact of my strike on his head. Yeah. So. Do you have a... Uh... Is there a particular moment where you turn pro, or was it too vague back then? Uh, no, no, you definitely turned professional and went. Um, you know, had to change it and do that. Um, mine was uh, 2012. I turned professional. Um, fought the first professional fight at Treasure Island. Um, again for Brutal Genesis. Um. I tried to get, <laughs> again, the rule stuff. I, uh, right before that, getting ready for that one, I was actually going with Gus and we were, we were grappling and my toe had got caught in the mat and like literally dislocated, bent all the way sideways. I don't, I don't know if it was broken. I don't think so. Literally was my second toe was over the other three sideways. And so my toes all smashed. It was like the week and a half before the fight. And so I got a hold of the promoter said, Hey, can I wear wrestling shoes? And he says, well, no, you know, I can't. I said, well, you know, hey, we're at the casino, which there wasn't any rules over there. Because, like, we'd fight amateur fights, but we could do pro rules there. So you could knee and elbow and everything 
Yeah, so we at were Treasure Island back in the day. On the res. Yeah, so we had brutal fights at Treasure Island because you could fight professional rules as amateurs. Um, so I was like, "Hey, man, they'll let you do whatever." Like, come on, like uh, I am. I, you know, I tell them like, "Hey, listen, don't say the other guy, but like my toes smashed and hurt up. Like, I need my shoe." And I know you can't do. Say, well, hey, I won't kick him in the head. I got the shoes. I won't kick him. No, no, I can't do it. I said, hey, man, this, you're bringing this country bumpkin from Iowa. He's going to be wearing jean shorts. Like, come on, let me wear wrestling shoes. <laughs> and like, this guy wants a fight. He he needs to have a fight on the card. Oh, yeah. Ah, he won't let me do it. Mm. Um, but, mm. yeah, that was where I made my professional debut was down there um, in uh, Treasure Island. Landed a good elbow to the guy's face uh, on the bottom, hurt him. He turtled up and pounded away, got the win there. And then um, – Signed my contract. I signed the contract, signed with Jeremy and uh, SEG, and then moved up to Minneapolis. I signed the contract for my second and third fight at the same time and moved up to Minneapolis right then. I said, hey, this is getting serious now. I, I got to fight and train at the uh, the best gym. And so I knew that was under Greg Nelson at the academy. I got to get up there and, and start doing this serious if I'm going to do it. If I'm a professional. Signed with Jeremy, um, and he he's had a great system and developed a ton of good guys. He got me a, a place to stay with one of his friends. Hey, I'll get you a room at a place. We we'll get you up at the academy, you know, find you you know work, whatever else. Um, so I signed two fights. Uh, Star Roberts was uh, the first one, and then I signed a fight. Damian Hill was my um, third fight. Um, Fought Star Roberts and then was supposed to fight Damian Hill. And then he got food poisoning, uh, is what he says. He got sick the uh, first time we're supposed to fight. Literally was at, we weighed into the whole thing. It was at the arena, was in the venue. And then my buddy came running up. We're in the back. And it was kind of, you know, loosey-goosey on the rules of who can get in the back or not. Or just like this little curtain. And my buddy comes running up and goes, hey, man, I just saw your guy fucking leave out the back door. Your guy just ran out the back. He had his backpack and everything. They left. And I was like, what? And so I told Jeremy, and like, yeah, he just kind of snuck out and said, hey, I got food poisoning. I had a tuna, concessions food, tuna yeah. sub from Subway or whatever oh, he says. Yeah, you know? I was like, yeah, that'll don't eat you. the seafood from <laughs> Subway. That's probably not a great idea. <laughs> uh, so that fight, I ended up getting rescheduled, and we fought two months later or something like that. Um, you know, as, as two of the highest – prospects at the time because damien was a great fighter super yeah. good fighter great, a talented kid um you know just kind of got pushed along i think a little too fast in his career and fought to tough guys um tell me what that means you well hear, you hear people talking about fighters and the pace with which they move up and out and whatever yeah what's it mean to get pushed along too fast i think guys will fight um and not just like the pace of how many fights are doing but it, you have to be calculated on fighting fights that are tough fights and guys that you you know you got to kind of look at like what are the odds of you winning these fights and you have to sort of calculate in time when you're going to take the risks and at the time we only each only had a, a few fights and i mean skill wise and and how the matchup went you know skill for skills like i was a very tough matchup for him um because he was a fast athletic good striker and a decent wrestler but i was much bigger than him um, and being tall and left-handed, it was just a tough matchup for him. And I, I just didn't think his skills were at the level where it was. Um, I think his coach had kind of a vendetta kind of deal with Greg in the academy. It was like this weird thing of like wanting to beat the big school. Mm -hmm. 
And unfortunately, I think he sacrificed a few guys' careers trying to, to beat the academy. Sure. At the expense of young men's health, he was willing to risk that to try to get a win over Greg Nelson. Yeah. And, you know, Greg's like, you don't got nothing against this guy and anything like that. It was just this guy just felt like Greg had the big school and was getting all the attention, doing all those things. Like, well, he earned it. He put together a school. He runs a great <laughs> program. He teaches a bunch of good guys. He puts together the best system. That's why guys go there. You know, and for whatever reason, this guy, uh, you know, didn't like that. So he he was willing to put his guys' careers on the line. You know, several guys he had that were super talented kids, and they were out of this little gym. And I just don't think that they were getting the training that they needed to fight those kind of level fights. They weren't progressing the training to have adequate preparation for the level of fight that they were about to get into. Hmm. And so Damien being a a super tough kid in a good fight, I mean, I beat him in a minute. And he should have... It should have been a good fight. He should have been there and ready and do the, you know, had a tough fight against me. He got real cocky and, and swinging crazy, and I clipped him with a good punch, took him down, and choked him in a minute. And, you know, that's a guy who could have fought in a big show and never got there because his career got shoved along. Once he took that loss, then it was kind of like, ah, well, whatever now. And I think he was just kind of taking payday fights, which is a really stupid thing in MMA. Um, because the paydays aren't big enough anyway to make sense. Mm-hmm. And guys say that kind of stuff with a lot of things. They're like, well, I'll, I'll do this. You know, I'm going to, I should maybe fight it this way, but I'm not going to do it until I turn professional. I want to get paid for it. <laughs> I said, you're going to not make the wait until you're professional for what? $400, $800, 1000 <laughs> whatever they're paying you. I was like, did you make that in three days working at some, you know, construction job, whatever. Yeah. What are you going to... There ain't no 401k here. Oh, man. Well, what's the point? I said, listen, that's why I took that many amateur fights and didn't. I tell guys now when they're young, I said, amateur fights are to get experience and to understand as much about the game as you can. So as an amateur, it's like, well, I want to fight a left-handed guy, and I want to fight a kickboxer, and I want to fight a wrestler, and I want to get to my right weight class and test it out there when it doesn't really matter, and what's it like to travel and cut weight and do this, and what's it like to be the A side, what's it like to be the B side, Try to figure as much of that out as you can when the score doesn't really count. Of course, your amateur record counts, but nobody really cares. It doesn't matter. You know, we're going to wipe it all clean and you're going, oh, no, after that. Nobody cares right now that I went 14-0 and as an amateur. Didn't matter. You know, those those fights don't count. And most of them aren't even on my record. When you look at Sure Dog, I think two of them are on there. I think only Evan Johnson ones are on, or uh, Corey Anderson, yeah. another tough kid I fought. I think there's only two. Out of 14 that are even recorded. Yeah. So let them be developmental. Let them have a specific goal and a a Figure that stuff out. If you think you can make 125 pounds, but you don't want to do so, it's like, no, no, no. First, again, and I said this today at the seminars, I said, hey, if you think you're going to go to a new weight class, why don't you do a camp, a mock camp, cut the weight on a Friday, weigh in, rehydrate, do your whole thing, and then on Saturday in the gym, we're going to do a simulation fight. You're going to do three rounds against one or or a couple guys or whatever, and we'll see how it goes. Because you might just get gassed, dog tired, and go, I can't cut this weight and still fight. I made the weight, but I couldn't perform. My body did not react. This is not a good idea. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing I've done with powerlifters because powerlifters will cut weight for meets too. And it's like, well, you're talking about cutting weight for nationals? You've never done a weight cut? How about we cut weight for a Saturday? Yeah. Like a Saturday, you know, we'll, we'll do a mini meat prep type thing. It's six months out. 
get a taste of that before you show up to the biggest meet of your life or your next biggest fight and shit the bed, maybe literally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Try it. Yeah, because they might think, well, if I if I make the two twelve instead, of, hey, or whatever the weight classes are, mm-hmm. man, I'll be strong up there. So, mm-hmm. Did you cut that weight? And then your lifts literally went down 50 pounds. Yeah, you miss openers at nationals because you cut weight for the first time ever. Yeah. Good job, buddy. You zapped yeah. your strength. And it was like, oh, man, I wish I would know. I was like, well, yeah. Same, same thing in the fight. Yeah. Yep. Know it ahead of time. Yeah. Test those things out. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, I, I tell guys that with, with trying to get preparations, like figure it all out when it doesn't count, doesn't matter, and get there. Because like I was saying with that team, I think that costs a lot of guys on their squad you know, good careers. I fought Stefan Watt was from the same gym, super tough guy, great fighter, uh, you know, talented, uh, you know, and a crazy athlete. Yeah. Crazy athlete. Both those guys are. And literally it's like physically they're way more talented than I am for sure. But they weren't prepared to figure out how to win and fight. And so I knew Damien was going to get wild to do. I calculated weight, hit him with a clean left hand when he jumped in. Boom. Straight, easy left hand, not too hard. Hurt him, clipped him, took him down, choked him. Damien, or uh, Stefan Wild's like, all right, he's a real good athletic guy. He moves around crazy, like, boo-boo, timed a couple things, took him down, held him down, beat him up. That was the first time I went to decision. But I knew, it was like, I just beat him up for three rounds. He wasn't ready to fight like that. He wasn't ready to just have to wrestle off his back and do submissions and get beat up for 15 minutes, mm-hmm. and I was. Mm-hmm. Physically more talented than me, was like, well, I'll just take that out of the equation. I'm going to just take you down, hold you, beat you up a little, hold you some more, beat you up a little more. And I just wore him out and beat him up. It reminds me of like how you hear, I hear people talk about how awesome like collegiate sprinters would do at like the NFL combine. You know, yeah, they they do some lifting. They'll bench good and they'll run fast in a nice straight line with a controlled start and all that. Even just the, how the combine is so silly for football in general. Because <clears throat> like you have these m- maniac athletes that don't have the skills and all the other types of prep that goes into the specific game we're talking about. Yeah. You know, you can swing a big right hand. Maybe you can wrestle a little. You can go a little crazy on the right guy. But if somebody's tactical about it, yeah, you're going to get in deep water real yeah, quick. Yeah, if your intangibles aren't there and you're not cerebral enough to figure things out, because eventually, you know, and that's what you look at at fights and like the levels of things, is like, well, eventually all the guys are going to be tough. And guess what? Eventually, all the guys are pretty good athletes. You get to a certain level, and it's not like, oh, this guy's good, but he's, you know, just slow as could be. It's like, well, no, he wouldn't have got here if he was. <laughs> and I was like, well, this guy's tough. Well, no kidding. He's had 15 fights. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's probably got to be kind of tough to make it for 15 pro fights, which isn't even a ton, but it's a decent amount. If he's got 15 pro fights, well, he's probably kind of tough. Oh, this guy punches hard. It's like, well, yeah. Guess what? There ain't too many guys in the UFC that don't punch hard. They all can swing a little, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Or it's like, well, yeah. And so it's it's one of those things. Where like it's kind of funny when guys are like, you know, that's the thing that they say about a guy, or they're worried about fighting some guys. Like, oh man, he can really hit hard. It's like they all hit hard. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody in the NFL runs fast. Yeah, Even yeah, the they're all fellas. big. Yeah, they're all big guys. Uh, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. When you, you train some jujitsu, then do you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This yeah. is a jujitsu podcast, technically. So yeah, like yeah. So bring it up specifically I, I for, do, the, uh, for the dorks. Yeah, I've done uh, a lot of jujitsu. I mean, and I'm a, like I said, I, I grew up wrestling and doing that. And I fell in love with doing jujitsu. Thankfully, a lot of wrestlers don't like it, which is weird. 
because like ah, oh, the rules are a little different. I was like, it's still grappling, right? And fortunately enough, I mean, we trained and we we had a bunch of guys that liked it, and we did from the start in Mankato, and then getting to train under Greg Nelson, who was a wrestler and loves jiu-jitsu and does it, was a huge advantage because I fell in love with it too. And he got this old saying from some cowboy or something, he, a wrestler, and he's like, well, I didn't really like it at first either until he realized, like, I'm wrestling a guy with a rope around his neck. I was like, that lapel is already, he's like, oh, cool. I could wrestle this guy and do this, you know. So I fell in love with jiu-jitsu, and I, and I love it. You know, I, I've trained it for a long time and, uh, you know, super proud to have earned a black belt under Greg Nelson and, and to have achieved that um, and still practice it and, and use it in a lot of my fights and self-defense stuff that I do. It's super applicable, and I love to compete in it. Um, a lot of people who are fighters or, or MMA guys don't like jiu-jitsu, sport jiu-jitsu and things like that, and I think it's great. Um, are there certain parts of it that aren't going to work in self-defense and things like that? It's like, well, of course. But as a sport, it's like, I still think it's a great sport. No matter which rule set it is, you know, ADCC, great. Okay, I like that. It's a little more open. There's a lot of stuff they can do. It's like, but even IBJJF, where there's all kinds of silly little rules and advantages and this thing or that. It's like, well, I'd still rather, much rather watch that than soccer or Mm -hmm. tennis or whatever. Like, it's still an awesome sport. Yeah. It's great. And it'll probably be um, my focus for a while after – my fighting career is done. I mean, all, coaching is, is my, my plan, my goal there. But, like, you know, as far as competitive-wise, the f- next thing will be jiu-jitsu. I was going to ask if he would retire to jiu-jitsu. Yeah, and that's that's kind of the thing there is you can still be competitive at that. Um, I mean, really until you're way older because there's age classes, which is kind of nice. And you can do it. You of course, take out the punches to the head. That's good for an old guy too yeah definitely yeah yeah and i mean like if you're old like you can still train kickboxing and boxing and do those things and hit the bag and hit the pads and all that stuff i'll do that till i'm 100 years old but uh you know competitive wise it's like well you don't want to spar even and it's certainly not compete live action yeah taking a knockout at 53 years old how's that doing to the brain even a hard a good punch you know you don't even want to get clipped yeah 50 years old like that's not a good idea you know, uh, the ground is farther down when you're in your fifties. Oh yeah. It's a yeah. longer fall. Yeah. And your, your neck probably not quite as strong to <laughs> brace for that shot you're going to take. Um, but yeah, jujitsu will, will probably be the, the path after, um, competitive fighting. I'll do that for a while. I think, uh, you know, that's kind of my, my goal. I have a little plan and obviously, you know, it's always things change or your, your mind changes. You might go different directions, but there's a couple of, I'll always want to compete and like do things and, and challenge myself. And I, I went over that a little in the uh, seminar day about choosing to do things that are hard, that are completely voluntary, mm-hmm. I think is a, an incredible skill for people. Mm-hmm. If you just voluntarily do something that's very hard and you could quit at any time and you stick it out, I think you learn a lot about yourself. Things that aren't even necessarily right con- connected to the sport or activity that you're doing. It's just about yourself. Mm-hmm. Hey, I was dedicated to something. I did something that was really tough and hard physically and mentally, especially things that are physical and mental at the same time. I think, you know, doing those things is is very important. So I plan to do those things um, throughout my life. 
And I sort of have a plan with those things. Where it's like, well, you can only fight until you're a certain age. I mean, you can fight for a while, but it's like, you, it's only a good idea yeah. to fight until you're a certain age. Feel free to keep fighting, but yeah, probably yeah. don't. But probably, you know, maybe not the best yeah, idea. Yeah. But, but whatever, you know. I People are adults. Like, people make way other worse decisions. Right. People who criticize guys for fighting until it's like, the guy criticizing him is 400 pounds <laughs> and eating Cheetos every day. It's like, hey, dude, yeah. I get it. He's not making a great decision, but neither right. are you, dude. Yeah. So shut up. Like, right. let him do his thing, you know, like. Something if, about stones and glass houses. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, if Roy Jones wants to box, he's 55. Like, good for him. Well, yeah. you know, he could be doing worse shit. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, so I think, you know, I f- there's a couple of things that you can only do for so long after that that I want to do is is jujitsu and, and li- really lifting weights. I'd like to get as giant and as huge as I could get mm-hmm. and be a gorilla mm-hmm. for a little while. I've done weight cutting sports and been skinny and all yeah. this my life. Yes. I'd like to see how much of a giant, big, strong guy yeah. I can get to. This makes a lot of sense to me. Oh, Sometimes yeah. I wish you guys could yeah. see the photo of his first fight against Evan Johnson and compare it to now because it's yeah. not the same person. Yeah, yeah. Does, does, anytime fighters talk about, oh, yeah, 15 years ago I fought at such and such weight, I, I'm always like, how, bro? Look at you. That's like seventy pounds different, and you ain't exactly fat. Yeah, like some of the 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 pictures have to be astonishing. It's such, and when it's become a huge part of my training now, because like, you, and there's different theories on that stuff. But you obviously you got to do skill work and get better at all that stuff. But at a certain point, you have to maintain a certain level of athleticism and like physical condition, and like that's part of the reason why i've been able now to continue to do this at a high level and be 36 years old i'm 37 later this year and i'm still fighting the best guys in the world well you can't do that if your body's breaking down you've been hurt and doing all this stuff well physical training has been a huge part of that for me and being figuring out stuff with health and nutrition and sleep and recovery and and physical training so i'd like to you know and that's the thing is like it's a couple of those things like right even competitive jiu-jitsu i think at a high level you can only do till you're a certain age but it's you know, more like 45 instead of 36, 37, mm-hmm. 38 fighting. Mm-hmm. Like that's pushing it, especially at my weight class. Like you're, that's not, unless you're a heavyweight, anything beyond that's really, really pushing it. But jujitsu is like, some of those guys are 45 and they're still world, world class. Right. And you can do it there. I think the same thing with weightlifting. You can lift weights your whole life and be strong, but it's like at a certain age, trying to squat 600 pounds is not the best idea. You know what's beautiful about it? the 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 line where it kind of irreversibly goes the other direction is so much fucking older than all the rest of these sports mm-hmm. like maybe not as far out as like endurance stuff but any of the power and speed and and be lightning fast stuff man you got precious few years yep but you can be 48 years old slinging serious iron yes you know as long as you've maintained your health up to there or set a base of training up to there mm-hmm. you can be a strong old dude it's a beautiful thing yeah yeah and that's my kind of goal like yeah. i'm excited for this phase of your oh, life i know man. we just met but i'm excited for dude, this and me phase. too you know like it's the thing like i love what i do now <laughs> right and it's great and i i cherish every moment of it right because i know it's going to come to an end and everybody's going to want to continue past when they should or whatever and I'm getting towards the end of that thing, right? I'm, I don't think about retiring and doing that stuff now. I have a plan. I got things in place for that, fortunately, mm-hmm. and I'm ready to do that, you know. And, and but, but I'm in it 100% to fight still now. But the the after that stuff, I'm super excited about all that too, you know. And that's a, a great part. Of it. It's like, and it goes right hand in hand. Where it's like, 
I want to be a giant gorilla of a man, as strong as can be and just huge. And also doing jujitsu, like I'll just be able to fold people in half mm-hmm. and just that pressure smash you kind of jujitsu where it's like, dude, if that guy gets a hold of you, you are in such trouble. You're not going anywhere. He's going to just tear you apart. Mm-hmm. And those things go hand in hand. And I'll be able to do that for a certain time. And then I think after that, my kind of transition will be, like you said, to the other kind of deals of endurance sports. I got a cousin who does ultra marathons and I look at that kind of stuff and I go, man, that is the, such an ultimate challenge. And just though, if you want to talk about guys who are tough, those guys are tough. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. man. And those races are always in the desert and shit or the like worst. in the mountains. I like- did. I just, I just, uh, I, I was a, a pacer now, uh, just for my cousin recently. Um, Mike Ortley who lives in Montana, Super cool guy and a great dude, a, a real thinker, you know, and he loves to challenge himself and do all kinds of stuff. And he did a bunch of marathons on this stuff, and he did – this was his first 100K race, 60 miles. And, he, of course, he does it in north of Phoenix, Arizona. So <laughs> we're going through the mountains in the desert, in the heat, all this stuff. And so he asked me, hey, you you know, you're down there. You, you maybe help me out with this stuff. So – I'm his medic and his pacer um, if he needs one and just kind of part of his crew, him and myself and his girlfriend. Um, so we're there. He's doing this, prepping for it, got all the stuff. And these guys, I mean, this it's serious stuff. Even at a beginner level, they got everything figured out. He's got Excel spreadsheets of how many calories and how many carbs and which electrolytes he needs and all this stuff for this pace and this many times. And like we're switching shoes here and we're doing that thing. And we're doing that. So 20 miles in is like, there's a uh, eight stations about every whatever eight ten miles depending. There's just kind of different, but there's only three of them that the crew can go to. First one we go to, he's twenty miles in. He's already got blisters going on his feet, so I'm taping up his feet. I'm making these little band aids. I'm doing the stuff. We're going. We we got a long way to go yet. Your feet are already tearing <laughs> apart. All right, you haven't even ran through the water yet. There, and all this other stuff. An integral part of the race, the feet. Oh man, yeah. You don't have to try to run it on your hands. That'd be hard. Uh, he. <laughs> so we go. Makes it to the next one. We can meet him at 40 or 35 miles in or whatever. We're going. We get to the third one. You can kind of live track all the stuff. He's starting to slow down. We're like, oh, man, you know, his pace is kind of tipping off. He had kind of had an original plan of what pace he can run. Because, I mean, he does marathons. Like, dude, he runs marathons at like a 630 pace, which is ridiculous. Which kind of is one of those funny things when people talk about the quote of like, it's not a marathon or it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Well, uh, if you look uh, at guys uh, who are the best yeah. at marathons, like they're sprinting the whole time. Yeah. It is a sprint. 20, 26 miles at a 515 pace and shit like that. Yeah. Just what? That is absurd. Dude, guys running, f- like if you can run a five minute mile, you are at all impressive. One, <laughs> one, one, t- one time. In that your is life. so impressive. <laughs> well one mile, not two, not four, not eight. One mile is so impressive. And these dudes are doing it for 26 in a row. So he came out a little hot on this ultra. And so he starts getting faded. So before each of the aid stations, I would kind of backtrack and run from the aid station, kind of catch up with him. Hey, what do you need? Get a little assessment. Where are we at? All this stuff. So that when we got the aid station, he could just relax, chill. I talked to his girlfriend, Betsy. Hey, this is what we need. He needs this many in his couple, this two for his drinks, this for his food. Okay, we're going to do this and this. So I start to run back, and then we kind of time it. We're looking at his pace. I think I'm going to get get to him about a mile before. And I'm kind of jogging back, and I'm not finding him. I'm not finding him. I end up backtracking like four miles. Finally catch up to him. He's running with a couple other guys. He's like, oh, yeah, hey, 
this guy's from my cousin's from Kalispell, Montana. He said, This guy's from Bozeman. This guy, I'm like, okay, cool. Hi, guys. We're running a little bit. He's like, I got to slow down. He's like, I got to stop. He goes, Man, I'm seizing up. His legs were seizing up. Like, literally, they would lock and he'd almost fall and wipe sure. out. And he was having these spasms. He's like, It's in my abdomen underneath my ribs. He's like, It's like I'm getting stabbed. And he would make a noise and you go, oh, that's not like he's whining because he's tired. It was He was in serious pain. So we'd walk for a little bit and he's, and I'm like watching. I mean, we're on the edge of like a cliff here, really. Mm-hmm. And some of these trails, I'm like, dude, if you fall, like, bro, <laughs> you're going to fall down and break your leg, tumbling 60 feet, and it's going to be all I can do to get you out of there. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like, Jesus. So I'm spotting, going, and we're kind of jogging for a little bit, go. We get him that last aid station, start getting him healed up. And I know I'm like, I got to run this last bit with him. Like, all right, I'm about to pace. So I ended up, we get going and we're moving and it's cool because he, he bucked up, you know, he, he just got field up, did it. And we start running and we, we were moving and we ran the whole last 13 some miles. And we did, I had half marathon, which I wasn't training for. And it's through the mountains. And so, you know, I get roped into this, but it's kind of one of those deals. It's like, well, what am I going to do, bitch? Mm-hmm. He ran 50 miles before this, and I wasn't gonna be like, "Hey, man, why don't you slow down a touch, dude?" It's getting a little. <laughs> yeah. I ran four miles to find you, buddy. I don't want to run 13. Miles. Yeah, like fuck, you know. So we're going and, and we're gonna start getting, it and we're kind of, you know, I'm pushing him a little bit, and that's why he had me do it instead of his girlfriend, because like this is gonna. There's no way you sign up for one of those races and it doesn't start getting dark. It's gonna be you're gonna suffer for sure. And I'm sure she could have done it and been there like that, but it was like at that moment he needed me to tell him to shut the fuck up. We're going. Like, come on, man. We're moving here. Different kind of support. I'll help him. He's like, hey, listen, I got the med kit whatever. Dude, if I got to, I'll band you up, tourniquets, tape you, do whatever. I'll carry you the fuck out of here. But, like, I'm going to make you finish this because now I got to run with you, dude. And I didn't sign up for this race, dude. (laughs) Now I'm pissed. They ain't giving me one of those cool buckles. (laughs) Like, let's get it. And so we're going in. And he, dude, he sucked it up, ran that last however far. And so it's cool because we're passing people now that had passed him up and that we had left. We're passing because people are slowing down. There's 50-some miles into this deal. We catch the last aid station. We think by our watches, each of us, that we got about five and a half miles left. And the guy tells us, you got three. So we start booking it. And we're cool. And I'm like, dude, we're getting it. We're going. And it was a real cool moment that we had um, where I was talking to him for some of the time. But as a pacer, you know, obviously you'd think, oh, you're in front and they're just keeping pace with you. But the thing was, like, I hadn't been running with him previous to this race. So I don't know his pace. If we had been training partners, then I understand his pace. Like, all right, I'll keep that pace for you. So we kind of did in reverse where I'm just going to nip on your heels and I'll be breathing down your neck. And if you slow down, I'm going to be right on you. I'm going to tell you, come, come on, come on, get going. And we had this moment with about two miles left where silently without saying anything, he just sort of slid off to the side. And I knew, okay, it's my time to go in the lead. And I passed him up and I just said, keep up. I said, don't you lose me. Let's go. And he started running behind me. And we're going through and I start running. I mean, we were going before that. We're moving. I'm now running. Like, I'm moving. We're getting after it. I'm dying, right? I'm looking at my watch. My heart rate's 180. I'm just do, 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 do. We're running. This is through the mountains. This is elevation. This is trails. This is hard stuff. And we start getting to the end of it. There's these blow-up little inflatable deals, kind of like Mark's, hey, you're getting close to the end, getting close to the end. So I start going all Goggins on him. I'm screaming. 
I said, Mike, we came here to fucking run, brother. Let's get going. Like, fucking go. I was like, you better get it. Let's go. I'm screaming at him, screaming. We start running. We're sprinting now. He's ran almost 60 miles at this point, and he's full just tilt running. And I'm screaming at him, yelling through the wind. And we get to that end, and I'm just like, go past me. Go, go. And as soon as he makes that push to pass me, I start sprinting again. I was like, go. We get done at that end, and we're both just, duh. And lose it. But it was one of those just cool moments where it was like, hey, man, I didn't train for this at all, and I did that, and I just love doing that kind of stuff where you just have to mentally push yourself in a way and go. And I would like to run down there. I do trail running a lot and stuff, but I hadn't been for any part of this camp or my training at this point. It wasn't part of my regimen. My other cousin was there, his sister, and she's like, how did you do that? You just ran more than a half marathon with no training, like through the mountains, not like on the road where it's all nice and flat and easy. Now you just booked it through that and you were sprinting at the end more than a half marathon. I was like, it's not necessarily that I'm good at running. I said, I'm good at suffering. And I said, I'm good at suffering in something that's way harder than this. I was like, usually when I'm suffering like this, a very dangerous man is trying to smash my skull in. Right. I'm like, Oh, what your legs are tired. Oh, Oh, you're a little winded. You're going to quit. I'm like, get the fuck going, dude. What you, yo, your feet are tired. There's a hill coming. up. Oh no. You're jogging, <laughs> you're jogging and you're a little tired. Oh, that's hard. And so again, it's just like, you just gotta be, it's one of those things where you, if you choose to suffer at things, it makes so much of life that much easier. And I think that's one of the great things about those kind of sports, endurance sports, things like that. And especially martial arts, it's a, to choose to suffer and to do something hard that's just totally voluntary. And you're putting a lot on the line and risking it. You learn a lot about yourself. And I think you gain a ton from that. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned it in the in there in your seminar too, but and I kind of lit up because that's a rant I've gone off on with like clients, you know, train personal training clients and challenge people to like go run races and go do a powerlifting meet. You don't know what that means, but go do it. Who gives a shit? Because uh, I don't know that most people have ever voluntarily done something difficult. Yeah, like past high school, right? Because even in high, okay, I'm going to sign up. Well, yeah, your parents talk to you about it. Your friends are doing it. You're not like voluntarily signing up for a thing and then suffering through the prep and going and doing it alone. It's different. But it's, it, it's like the rite of passage that our culture is missing. Mm-hmm. Where like once all external pressures and forces and norms are out and you can just get your accounting degree and go sit behind your desk and sit at home and stream Netflix – then you got to choose to do something hard. Yeah. And that's, that's, I mean, it sounds like you and I are absolutely on the same page there. Like find something wild and go do it because you chose to, not because it was normal or expected or your friends were doing it. It's different. It's a comfort crisis kind of a situation there where it's like, Hey man, it's real easy to do that. And it's great that our, our world and our society and everything is at that point where you can be comfortable and like do that. But it can also be a detriment to you at a certain point where, listen, you can be, you can about be a total turd and live just fine. If you live in America, you'll get some kind of assistance and a little bit of help and you'll make sure you're getting care of. And you can literally sit on the couch and eat Cheetos and smoke cigarettes all day and watch soap operas. And somehow, some way, it'll all be there for you. Mm-hmm. you I mean, you can. Even if you're out there earning a living, you're certainly never going to need to break a sweat as an adult. No, in you the just United find States. some little job. Yeah. yeah and they'll you pay never, you or whatever. And, yep. And, and you can find that. Where it's but a as real a personal thing. constitution, you're, you're subtracting from your own personal constitution i guess is what i want to say there yeah yeah and that's i think you know and it's one of those deals where people think it's like well oh easy for you to say it's your job where you do this and i go 
well, yeah, it's easy for me to say. But I go, but it's not always easy for me to do. And I constantly do it. And I do it in different ways. I said, yeah, like anything else, it's not that I'm good at the activities. Like, I'm just good at suffering at things. And the more you try different ways and different things, the better you get at it. And people are like, well, you know, and people talk about like being bored. And I'm like, how are you ever bored? I'm so curious about so many things. Same. I would never be bored ever. 100%. And I really like sucking at things. Yeah. I'm like, I like trying new stuff and go, I suck. And I got to figure it out and fix this because I don't like sucking at this. Mm-hmm. I was like, but it's fun. Yeah. And I'm new at it. And I'll try something else and, and figure that out. I'm like, I'm not an ultra runner and I'm going to suck. They're gonna, I'm going to lose those races for sure. I'm going to go to I'll try a powerlifting meet and they're going to smoke me. Yeah. They're way stronger than me. Mm-hmm. All right. Cool. What do I got to do to get better at it? Do better at it. I'll yeah. figure out. Okay. Okay. I'll try to do this or do that. And it just keeps your mind sharp. It keeps your body sharp. It just keeps you as a person like, I want to stay curious. I want to stay trying new things. I want to keep learning and developing. Because again, like you said, it's really easy to get your thing, do your deal, go to your work. And it's like, you might never learn another thing past yeah. 18 or 24 or whenever you stopped going to school or whatever. And you might be the same person from then on. It's like, mm-hmm. that's kind of a tragedy to me. Well, but then 18 years after that, you get laid off from a job and I got to go do something else. And you realize I haven't developed a skill. I haven't, well, and I haven't challenged my brain to do something else in 20 some years or whatever. That's Mm -hmm. funny you guys mentioned this. Nikita and I were very fortunate to go see uh, Dan and Osanto last week Mm -hmm. at um, the Minnesota Collie Group. He's, you know, going to be 87 this year and he was Bruce Lee's main training partner. Mm -hmm single-handedly probably one of the most influential martial artists of all time and he said that exact thing he goes the reason i'm still doing this is because i love to learn i love doing new things i have a passion for training and it's you know i'm not going to stop doing it and it's like to be able to still travel and do all this at 86 years old and have done everything he's done i mean he got his black belt from the machados at 67 Started when he was 57, started jiu-jitsu. And it's like, the next day, there's a photo of him with Hickson and Jean-Jacques. And I'm like, wow. You know, and it mm-hmm. just all comes down to this. It's like constantly being curious, always wanting to learn new stuff, learning new skills. And it's what it's like you said, it's like what keeps you young. You know, you mm-hmm. can't, you get bored, things get stagnant. The colors dim a little bit. It doesn't, the stuff's not as fun anymore, you know? Yeah. It's like, yep. What the hell is bored? Exactly. I, I'm with you. I don't. Stuff is. I I, I picked up a, a full time like day job, like a work from home thing. Got some particular financial goals I'm shooting at real hard. So like a steady gig was nice to pick up again. Mm-hmm. And it's in radon mitigation, bro. What the hell is that? I don't know. But let's go. Let's go find out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, let me Google it now that I'm hired and figure out what this is and learn all about it. It just, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. the the true skill of learning martial arts or any of these sports is facilitating your real life and being able to just zig and then zag and go do something else because it's all interesting and curious and your brain knows how to do it. Still, it knows how to learn. Yeah, that's part of the reasons. Like I travel and go so many places and do all this stuff. People are like. Oh man, you're always on some different mountain. Some different thing. I go, dude. I'm so curious about it. Mm-hmm. Every time I climb a mountain and get up to the top, one, it's always worth it. You're never mad that you worked that hard to get that view. And every time I get up to the top and I'm at some beautiful place, and I'm looking off. I'm like, oh my god, this is so amazing. And then I go, I wonder what it's like over there. <laughs> and I look at the other mountain. I go, there's I, another one. I kind of want to be on that one. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder what that trail's like. I bet that's really neat. 
And I'm just, I mean, I could walk up to those places and stop and stare at some one little part of that trail and be there for an hour, just amazed at some tree. And there's this crazy ant colony climbing up and this thing happening. And I'm going, I'm like a little kid. I'm just a nerd. I'm going, wow, look at these ants go like, whoa, they're tearing this thing and that. And like, look at those three doing this thing. And I could sit there for an hour. I'm like, well, look at that. There's marmots over there. And wow, they're making a, whoa. And I'm doing whatever. And it's like, how could you ever be bored ever? Right. Well, yeah, if I'm sitting on Netflix and trying to find something decent to watch, like, I'll be bored. Yeah. Because I'm like, these all suck. Especially lately. I'm just reason. sitting here. <laughs> yeah, there's so much stuff on there yeah, now, but it's yeah. like most of it sucks. Yeah, I'm sure. You still fight, huh? Well, tell me about last fight. Tell me about next fight. If you can yeah. answer each of those. Uh, the last fight was a tough one. I lost the decision to uh, Keely's Mota, who's a super tough guy. He fought here in Minnesota. He fought Bobby Lee here in Minnesota. Oh yeah. Um, super tough uh, Brazilian. He's won four in a row. Now. I think he just fought two nights ago. And one again, um, close fight, super hard back and forth action. Um, Bellator is just is full of tough guys. Obviously, some of the the best guys, and especially when you had like the top end of it, you know, have been been ranked in the top ten in Bellator. You're only going to get super hard, tough fights and against good guys, which I wouldn't want anything less. You know, I'm always trying to to get good fights and hard fights. I want to try to fight some of the, the top guys in that division, the big names. Um, unfortunately, Benson Henderson now retired who I used to train with you know, at the MMA labs. Awesome guy, a teammate of mine. That was like a goal of mine was to, to fight him and compete against him. He's probably one of the top five lightweights of all time. He'd be up in the consideration, certainly in the top 10 of all time. Um, you know, and to share the octagon with guys like that is just uh, is a special kind of a thing. You know, like I've been able to to fight some some pretty tough guys, um, big names. I think I have fought like ten guys who have been in the UFC now. I mean, I fought Gilbert Burns, who was a world title challenger. Um, some some pretty tough guys. So those are the kind of guys I'm looking to fight. Um, you know, that's tough when because. You win some, you lose some, you know, and that's the thing is like I've had kind of back and forth over the last while because, of course, I'm fighting the, the best guys in the world. I was fighting in the UFC and, and have a tough run against super hard guys who are, who are obviously world-class fighters. I fought once outside the UFC then uh, against a UFC veteran, super tough guy. I fought over in Abu Dhabi and won that fight, had a big fight, got a good knockout, then got into Bellator, beat the third-ranked guy in Bellator, lightweight division at the time. Um and then had a couple of tough ones, you know, so it's like back and forth. It's on and off, which is going to happen, like I said. And uh, I, was, I was talking with my family about it last night. And I was like, you know, you, you don't get the opportunity to to win big and to have big time kind of cool moments if you're not willing to lose big and risk it and do that, right? I'm willing to lose a big fight on national TV because you don't get a fight on national TV unless you're willing to lose on national TV, mm-hmm. you know, and, and to get those kind of fights. Um, so I'm pushing real hard for that. Bellator has a lot of guys on the roster, and they don't do a lot of shows. So it's hard right now to try to get fights. So we're looking at some other stuff too. Um, you know, uh, Bellator has been gracious enough to say, hey, we are we have an exclusive contract, but we're willing to let you fight outside of it if you find the right fight. So we're looking at potentially getting some other fights going. Maybe something here in Minnesota, if that lines up and works out, that would be amazing. 
Yeah. I would love to That's be able cool. to fight here again. Mm-hmm. And for my hometown fans and people that are, uh, you know, have, have been following my career and been supporting me for a long time, I'd love to be able to fight in front of those people again. Yeah. You know, it, it's just, it's something really special. Um, so hopefully something like that works out soon. Um, been in talks with some people and, and trying to get some things happen there. Hopefully Bellator makes uh, something happen soon too. I'm kind of pushing to get um, some of the uh, overseas ones. I like that. Some of the people don't like to travel and fight and do that, which I get, but like, you know, martial arts is a journey to me, and that's I'm, I'm trying to let that journey kind of take me as many places as possible. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've and been, that so many of the stories end up being where I was and what I saw the day after the fight, that kind of thing. I mean, yeah, well, and to get to experience different crowds and different places mm-hmm. and people and, and, and you know those cultures, and I've been super fortunate to have you know gone to Brazil to to corner fights, and you know I've cornered against Anderson Silva, crazy, right? <laughs> what what an experience to stand across and see the spider you know yeah, to do yeah. that and uh you know i've fought been able to fight in abu dhabi and go over there and, right. and go to dubai and f- go to japan and be in tokyo several times and be all around the world in canada and mexico and i just was in ireland you know uh, two months ago do- over there with my good friend bryce logan it's a huge win and what a cool experience mm-hmm. um so I, i'm trying to push him for bellator for those they got one uh coming up in paris i'm trying to get on that we'll see if what what happens there um and then we'll see i i I would really like to to fight in japan it's been a a dream and a goal of mine ever since watching pride and and seeing that kind of stuff and having been fortunate enough to have been over there five times and experience what that's like it's an incredible experience the way they treat fighters and the, the the atmosphere there and the culture like japan's an awesome cool place anyway and just a super neat place to be. And when you're a fighter, it's kind of a weird that you get a whole secondary like level of experience that is, is just insane. Um, like people ask me about that. I kind of say, but they, I don't equate to like, they treat a fighter as if you're like Tom Brady over there. Sure. You're that kind of level of like an athlete. We're over here. It was like, I mean, I'll swing at the gas station after we're done here. And not one person there's going to recognize me Mm -hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Like nobody, <laughs> we look like we could be brothers. They're like, yeah, yeah, him. I don't know. Nobody knows. I'm just yeah. whoever. Yeah. Over there, out like literally, people look at me and go, "Well, for one, he obviously looks different than most people here." But they look at me and they fear, and they swear they'll grab their phone, scroll, look, do 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 go, and they go, "Oh, hit the man, hit the man, oh, hit the man." <laughs> That's awesome. Photo, photo. I'm like, yeah, for sure. Hell yeah, photo. Uh, yeah, I'll give you a photo. Yeah, <laughs> definitely, dude. That's cool. Um, so I've, uh, Bellator thankfully does have kind of a co, um, promotion. They do partnership with Ryzen over there. Ryzen is sort of like the new pride. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't know about it, but it is an incredible fight league. They put on sweet, sweet fights. They have awesome rules too. Like, like I was saying, they'll do, you can do soccer kicks and stuff. You can hit to the, to the people on the ground. They do, they'll even let you like kind of pick the rules. So they've done like pride used to do 10 minute first round. And then five minutes, second round, and they'll judge the fight as a whole. And if necessary, we'll do a third sudden victory round, which I really like. Let us fight for as long as possible, and we'll figure it out. And then, if necessary, we'll take a little break. And then, if necessary, we'll do judges. But I, that's a better scoring system and a way to do it, I think. 
Um, just a different game to it mm-hmm. than than with like standard three five rounds. Yeah, because then you're just playing this little point game of like, all right, well, I'm just gonna like uh, move around, do this. Okay, I'm gonna steal the round. I'm gonna push forward now. Boom, boom, boom. Combination takedown. Okay, I'm gonna land for the last minute. All right, cool. I win. And I was like, well, you really, and they scored like different there too. You get taken on dress up. It's like they're scoring it more heavily on damage. They say that here in the United States, but over there, they definitely do that. Where it looks like a guy will be dominating the fight as far as like control and he's moving, but it's like, but the other guy did more damage and it's like, and he was winning at the end. And that matters more. Sure. Because who's winning at the end matters way more. Yeah. That's fine if you were beating me in the beginning, but right. then you got tired and the tide right. changed. And like, and if we kept going, who was more likely to win? Yeah. Yes. That's interesting. Yeah. So that's a big goal of mine is to, to get some fights over there. Yeah. Um, you know, and we'll see. Like I said, 36 years old, 37 later this year. Um, I would like to be able to to fight over there a few times and do it. Um, I consider myself kind of on borrowed time already, you know, and I'm fortunate to be able to do it at this age. I turned professional when I was 25, and I told myself, I have 10 years of doing this. Anything beyond that is borrowed time, and it only makes sense if you're able to do it at the highest level. Any other, I was like, you know, at that point, don't be doing these fights for a thousand dollars and sticking around too yeah. long and wanting Down to at the armory. It. Yeah. Kind of things. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's uprising stuff, not uh, downsloping stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's, and, for, and here's the thing too, is like, I've fortunately knock on wood, been able to stay pretty healthy. I, right. uh, I've been knocked out twice in fights and that's it in my, my entire life. You know, not skateboarding when I was younger, football or any of those things. I've never torn my knees apart. I haven't had mm-hmm. any of those major kind of injuries. Um, and obviously the head stuff is the most important because you could offer me, you know, $100 million to fight. But if you told me, well, all the other side of that is you're not going to remember who your sister is when you're 50 years old. Well, yeah. then I'd say no. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing Correct. worth your mind. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of guys, I think, hang around for too long doing that stuff. But there are so many more opportunities for guys now to fight and to make good money beyond the UFC, you know, which I mean, even like crazy stuff like bare knuckle, which is like, that's wild. But hey, man, if they offer you $400,000 for three two-minute rounds against Billy Joe from Wyoming. Is that what it is? Three two-minute rounds? They Yeah. Well, some are different length different number of rounds but Uh they're two minute rounds interesting didn't know that and they like give guys who are you know like if you're a vet you fought the ufc you fought bellator you've been around you've done some things like draw they literally will give you billy joe from wyoming (laughs) and they'll let you punch this dude in the head for four hundred thousand dollars and it's like hey man i'll take a cut on my cheek for 400k yeah big deal yeah yeah. uh yeah so you know and there's that on your list Knuckle. Mm. You, you commented in there because Richmond's doing it. Richmond's doing it. He's 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 built for that. That's yeah. his style. That's his thing. <laughs> I mean, the guy with that kind of punching accuracy and, and ability, that's a perfect sport for him. Mm-hmm. I think I could do well in it. Um, is it like a goal or thing of mine? Like, well, not necessarily. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, hey, listen, if I'm healthy and I, and I have the opportunity, they offer me the right amount of money. You know, that's the thing. I'm a fighter and I'm a competitor and I'm a martial artist. Um, but again, a term from that Mike Richmond likes to use is like, I'm a prize fighter. If they offer me a big enough prize, well, okay, I got to consider. I mean, anybody would. You know I mean, even if right. someone's like, hey, you never had a fight ever. But if they said, hey, we're offering you a half a million bucks to get in a fight with this guy, 
he'd be like, all right. <laughs> I'm a blue belt, baby. Let's go. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like, uh, uh, yeah. If I invest that money, that's life changing money. Yeah. Forty years from now, when yeah. I retire. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Um, right. That's a different. Different. It'd be thing. a short fight too. Get knocked out real quick. Yeah. And... You take a dive, catch your check, and you're out of there, <laughs> yeah, dude. Right. You know. <laughs> it's. Uh, I'm used to like... lapel grips. I didn't know what to do. Yeah. Whoops. Shot a couple <laughs> takes downs. Got DQ'd. Whatever. <laughs> um. Yeah, well, one I would like to maybe do is uh, I wouldn't mind fighting Muay Thai once in Thailand. That'd be cool. Just kind of the standard marquee things, like fighting in Japan. You're not the first to bring it up. Yeah. Anybody who's trained Muay Thai, there's something about Thailand. Yeah. It's kind of those, you know, bucket list items, it seems like. Yeah. Well, and funny enough, like, Thailand's like, they ain't going to pay me nothing. It's like, yeah, I don't care. Still cool. Yeah, yeah. It's not, that's not it's for cool money. Points. That's just why I was. You don't make do. any money getting to the peaks of mountains either, but it's cool. No, heck no. That costs me all kinds of money. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I drive a lot of miles and I fly to places and I, you know, rent cars and do all kinds of stuff and spend money out, you know, gear and everything. Mm-hmm. But sure, I'll gladly do it. It's a good view. Oh, yeah. Uh, a rogue methods guy. Mm-hmm. Tell me about it. Um, so. Rogue Methods is a company that I work for. Um, my real good friend and coworker Ra- uh, Raul Martinez started this company. He and I were together um, working for Fieldcraft Survival, which is a real big company. They do all mm-hmm. kinds of preparedness stuff, um, firearms training. We did some martial arts stuff a little bit when I was with them. They do overlanding. They do homesteading, yeah. all kinds of stuff. Uh, Raul is the training director for them. Um and he and I kind of split off, want to do our own thing and just focus on kind of the the self-defense part of it, just the, the firearms and the martial arts and kind of the blending of those two things. Um, Raul's a, a great dude, and uh, he was a former military. He did some contracting stuff, some pretty cool high-speed stuff, was a law enforcement in a few different agencies, worked undercover in Chicago, doing some pretty gnarly stuff there. So that that's where um, a lot of our close quarter stuff came from. And what we do and focus on a lot of is, um, you know, like what happens when you're tussling over firearms and things like that. Because as a responsible owner and, and carrier of a firearm, it's like you have to know what to do when things go wrong. And the worst case scenario, you know, like maybe not even drawing a firearm or anything, but you just get in some kind of an argument or a tussle and it's like, you know, hey, whether you wanted to or not, this is now a gunfight because there's a gun involved, mm-hmm. whether it's drawn or not. So you got to know how to control that thing, keep it holstered if you want to keep it holstered, draw it if you need to draw it, defend if someone else has one. You know what I mean? In that kind of situation, you're getting stuck up at the gas station. Somebody's pointing a, a firearm at you or a knife. Um, so we do both of those um, uh, things, blade stuff and firearms. Um, and our firearms training side, we do a lot of low profile stuff. So not all kinds of crazy kit and vests and night vision goggles and full, yeah. uh, LARPing stuff, which a lot of guys like to do, which is cool. Right. I got all that stuff too. Right? Yeah, it's it's cool. Yeah. It's fun. It's sweet. Right. I love all the stuff too. Right. right. It's cool. It's, it's awesome to have and to use and, and great, but the brass like, tacks. <laughs> what do I need? What do I need to know? What do I need to do? Yeah, yeah. kind of what's most likely of where I'm going to be at. You know what I mean? Like, okay, you got a, a pistol and one spare magazine, or you got a little carbine and you have one extra a magazine from that and you carry it in your in your vehicle or whatever and, and some wildness happens, right? Some crazy accident on the freeway and people are shooting and who knows. Um, 
and, and just kind of running and gunning with that mm. sort of stuff. Can you move? Can you do it? Um, so that's our focus with that kind of thing. Um, we do a lot of training with civilians. We do a lot of training with law enforcement and military. Um, we've been fortunate to do some pretty big training. We went out to, to Quantico and, and trained with the DEA guys. Um, had to get all kinds of clearance and stuff for that. Pretty neat to go out to a facility like that. You know, that's where the highest level guys are at and the the tip of the spear sort of dudes for DEA, FBI, CAA, all those kind of guys and, and work with some of those people on, on what we do because of what Raul has done and, and the course and the curriculum we've developed and worked on. He's very highly respected in the field. Um, one of the, the very top guys within the kind of focus that we work on and, and stuff we do there. And we train that stuff super hard, which is nice because he comes in and trains with me at Fight Ready down in, in Scottsdale. And we go over all our stuff. He trains mixed martial arts and stuff too. He's been, he's a guy, again, with my uh, jujitsu stuff, you know, he's been a blue belt for like eight years, 10 years and done it forever he just was like always traveling doing different things so he wasn't ever under one coach mm -hmm. so we've been like focusing on that and getting him in the gi and, and training with him and doing privates and stuff like that because i said hey listen uh, i'm willing to belt you and do this stuff but i'll never give anybody a belt i'm not going to give you a thing it's like, a disservice to him if you oh did. yeah well the both of us i said listen i'm not willing to discredit myself or, or mm -hmm. greg or pedro sour any of the guys i'm under i said no 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 no, no. you're going to earn this the whole way you're going to have to really train diligently. And I was like, I'm going to make you compete too because you compete. He uh, he took an amateur MMA fight at 38 years old when, <laughs> when we trained together and worked with it. He wanted to take a fight, so he did that. He And he, I mean, he's a little bull of a guy, right? He's a short dude, but he's got, he's just like, he has no neck, giant <laughs> shoulders. He's built like a tank. But I mean, he literally could probably make 155 and he fought at 185 against a giant dude, you know, way yeah. younger than him and smoked this guy. Like he's a game day kind of a dude. If you sure. put him in the gym in the training man, it's like, man, he's probably gonna get beat by a lot of the young guys. It's like, but when it's time to go, it's time to go. Right. And he's been in some situations and done some things, so he's gonna go. <laughs> um, so yeah, he fought, and we and we trained a ton of jitsu, and it's nice because we all our stuff we train with the firearms and nice. We bring the trainers in and we do it at the gym and we're able to do it and and work on that curriculum between ourselves and then also integrate it with high-level jiu-jitsu guys down there and high-level MMA guys and fighters mm -hmm. where it's like, hey, listen, I'm going to give you this like trainer firearm and you're a top 10 middleweight in the UFC. Try to keep this thing pointed at me yeah. and I'm going to see if I can like not get it pointed at me and if I can take it away from you. And we work different stuff and, and I always continue to involve that. We never like kind of just stick on, hey, this is the stuff we know and this is what we think. These are the theories of what works. Yeah, It's like, no, no, no. We're going to continually test this stuff, continually evolve. So our curriculum always changes, which is cool because we have a lot of repeat students um, who take our courses and get something different out of it every time, right. which is a big deal because we came here, I put this seminar on for you know a, a relatively cheap price, a nice price for people to do. It's like firearms training is expensive. Yes. And you involve weapons and doing that stuff like, hey, listen, this is – high level skill stuff and it took a long time and a lot of work to get to this point so you got to pay for that stuff people pay a lot of money for that kind of thing and it's a nice t a testament to raul and, and the program we built that people keep coming back more and more and more and we got people that travel all around so it's really cool because it's a very like i mentioned in the seminar a little bit like it's a, a community kind of a thing when you really struggle with people and you're sweating with them on the match or going through hard stuff and you do that it's a community so we got people that come to 
all over. They come to a class we have in Denver and they'll come to one we have in Vegas and they'll come to one we have in San Diego and they'll come down to Phoenix and they train and they go with all these different people and do all this right. stuff. Meanwhile, they live in Ohio, but yeah. they still pop out for each yeah. of those, right? Yeah, They'll, these are like their vacations are planned right. around this kind of stuff. Because, right. again, it's it's a it's a hairy situation. And what we do is like real kind of a deal. You know, there's lots of uh, movie stuff and other martial arts things where you see people doing firearms or, or weapons and knives mm-hmm. and things. And it's like some choreographed like, hi-ya, 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 and they're doing <laughs> 10 blocks in a row. And it's like, I tell people, I go, listen, if there's a knife involved, you can go nine for 10. And that's bad. You have a hole in you. You don't have a hole in you. You went nine for 10 on your sweet little block move there. At some point, you're either going to have to run or you're going to have to start wrestling and grappling and getting that thing, like get the business. So Weapons means accidentally dead. Yeah. You know, he accidentally poked you. Now you're bleeding and dying. Yeah. You can be be as good as you want, right? You better be real good. Oh, yeah. Well, and it's it's a cool thing too because it's – keeps you very humble because i tell people this we use simunitions which is a pretty advanced kind of stuff it's kind of limited on people's access to these but it's um actual like firearms these are our trainers that are as close of a simulation as can be to like a glock 17 shoots a simulation around that the rounds are exactly the same as it would be and everything like that it's just a paint tip so it really hurts the gun cycles and fires the same way the slide moves the magazine comes in and out you have to load the same problems it's all all yeah so there's miss you know you got stove pipes going on oh yeah yeah there's all kinds of malfunctions and and double feeds and you yep you got to fix it and click the magazine so it's real high level problem solving stuff it's super hard and it's gnarly and i tell you this is it's very humbling because i'm good at this stuff and i train all the time and i'm the one teaching like I get shot all the time yeah, doing I, it. I, I die several times. I get shot almost every weekend. I take one. Right. And it's like, oh, man. Or maybe I didn't die, but he yeah. got me. He got me the leg before <laughs> yeah, I got right. him, yeah. you know? Uh, and so it, it, it's humbling, and it's it just reiterates the importance of, yeah. of training that stuff and being responsible for it and, and doing it because it's a big deal. And obviously, it's a big thing we have in our country now is that there's a problem with gun violence, and there's like mm-hmm. a lot of talk on on responsibility and things and what should be allowed and what shouldn't be and um you know there's i'm somewhere in the middle on a lot of that stuff which i am with most things that are uh controversial political or any of those kind of deals the right you know until you're not on contract anyway then you yeah (laughs) well well, it's just well it's just like hey let you know somewhere in the middle is probably where uh, logic and reason resides and that's Mm -hmm. where the answers are going to be um it's probably not all the way one way and probably not all the way the other um, but I think there's a real responsibility if you're going to be a person who carries and owns a firearm to train with it, understand it and be as responsible a- as you can. And understanding that thing, it's a big, big deal. And people yeah. take it too lightly. Yeah, you know, definitely. they just buy one and they walk around with it or they don't, they never train with it. They don't really understand it. It's like, you think that thing makes you invincible. Like you are a holster for somebody else now. Yeah. That's you're a gonna bad, grab bad your move. shirt and fall over when you go for that gun because you've never practiced a draw, mm-hmm. let alone done it under duress or any yeah. of that. Yeah, so. and you watch movies and you think it's easy to hit something at twenty five yards and <laughs> you ain't gonna hit once. Yeah. I'll put a paper target. I was like, yeah. you're probably gonna miss all yeah. fifteen rounds and you go what? And that's at a resting heart rate, just chilling and sitting there. Throw that a jog in there and now try it. Never gonna happen. Yeah, never it's a lot it. harder than you think. So it's like yeah. it's a big responsibility to train yeah. that and do it and. You know, uh, I've been fortunate enough to be able to train with guys like that who are super high level. And people ask me, well, how'd you get involved with that? And how do you do it? I was like, well, hey, listen, I got involved when it was Fieldcraft and then now Rogue Methods with guys. And I equate it to the martial arts kind of thing. It's like, 
I got involved with them and I started training with them because they wanted, they had a little fight team up there and guys who were training. I went up there and started rolling with those guys. And I said, I'm the only one in the room who has not killed several people. And we started training and I was tying these dudes in knots and they're like, what the hell? Mm -hmm. I said, well, I do this full time. This is my whole thing. You guys train this a little bit way back when and they did the stuff and I said when you were like tangled with somebody and this happens like you screwed that mission up you were never meant to be hands on with guys and doing this kind of thing most of them mm -hmm. sometimes law enforcement things like that yes but I go I do this full time and do it so I was willing to go up there and train them they quickly like well you should be the coach of our team I was like oh, okay or I showed them martial arts and we did that stuff and integrated it with the firearms and then now I was able to take private lessons under what you would consider like high level black belts of shooting. Mm -hmm. I was taking private lessons with them and then I was taking all the courses, which would be like seminars. So I was doing privates and seminars all the time. And then I became an assistant instructor where it was like, I was under them and was like, I got so many reps and did that. And then I was willing to apply the same kind of thing from martial arts of the willingness to do repetitions over and over and over and over and do that to firearms. Like you're saying where, I'm willing to do jab cross on my heavy bag 500 times in a row and not get bored with it. I'm willing to just sit in my room at home and draw over and over and over yeah. and do dry fire. It's like, I'm not going to get this wrong. My hands are going to land up in the right place every time. And so I put in the repetitions, same style you do in martial arts and training there mm -hmm. and apply it to farms. Like, well, you got pretty good at this quick. And I said, well, quick relatively in time. Yes, but not in repetitions and work. I maybe put in this kind of work that someone else would over 10 years within two. Mm -hmm. And I got good at it that way. And I had high level instruction from guys who are special forces dudes, high level operators, some crazy, you know, those guys are field craft and the guy at rogue methods, like these are high level dudes, right? They done some wild, wild stuff that like, what I do is nothing. Dude. I just fight guys in the cage. Yeah. They're dangerous dudes. Yeah. And all this was like, we hug afterwards. Yeah. There's a ref and rules and whatever. <laughs> I can just quit if I want to. Right. Right. Like, does he know they're kicking indoors in some crazy, they just crawl through a jungle for three days mm. to sneak into a village and do some wild stuff. Wild like, stuff. Yeah, that's way hairier than anything I do, so. Yeah. It seems like there's a boom in the, like, self-defense and firearms, weapons, leaning self-defense, probably driven by the fact that fighters are getting into it. Like, operator guys and martial arts and good martial arts let's say are more prevalent than ever and it's all converging to where like the quality of weapons related self-defense and usage is so much better like there's multiple outlets that i follow rogue and fieldcraft being two of them ids here locally mm -hmm. that do a good job mm -hmm. you know where like you know, you get online, look up old, like, police training videos from the 60s and 70s, and you're like, was this the standard for how people who carry weapons were taught to use them? Yeah. You know, and it's like, no wonder, like, FUDs it became a, you know, a character archetype out there because it's like the convergence of martial arts mindset to the use of training weapons seems to have been key to that whole industry. Like you're saying, rep it out, get good at it. Don't, like, do it a few times and hope for the best. Yeah, you know, re yeah. dropping a magazine and loading in another magazine under duress, like the hardest thing in the world to do. Mm -hmm. It's a clumsy thing, anyhow. And now yeah. you're sweating. fine motor skills when it's oh, all on the right. line. Super tough. Yeah. It's, it just seems like a categorically good thing that that industry is growing, and there's so many outlets doing such a good job at a yeah. high level. Well, and I think 
because of the fact that like self-defense has become, you know, it's obviously more prevalent with martial arts and the boom of that, but just, it's just the need for it too. Yeah. And again, people are realizing like, Hey, uh, I can't outsource my safety. Right. I need to be yeah. responsible for myself. Like to do that is right. like, man, you're just hoping for the best. Regardless of what big picture solutions might be to the world, you here as an individual are your responsibility. Yeah. Yep. And I, I've even said like, if if two jabronis get into a scuffle at the subway you stopped at, one of them pulls a gun, drops it, it hits the ground. Can you contribute? Other than getting the hell out of there, do that first. Yeah. But like, if I mean, a gun drops to the ground, can you drop that magazine and clear the chamber? Do you know what that means? Yeah. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, you don't want to be involved in guns. Me neither. I don't no. want you to be involved in guns ever. Yeah. But if it happens, it's like buying life insurance. I never want to use my life insurance. Mm-hmm. But the magnitude of the situation where I would have wished I would have had life insurance is gigantic. Yeah. Same kind of thing. What can I do in this whatever random situation? Yeah. And if the answer is, oh, panic, because I, I see a gun and it's scary, that's not a great answer. No. No, you're mm-hmm. no help. And you might be a detriment to the whole situation, too. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things. Well, yeah, of course, I never have to do it. People ask that. And, you know, I've had some people say weird things. Oh, this thing happened. Like, don't you wish you were there? I go, absolutely not. No. Well, you might have been able to stop said, the last thing I want to do is ever shoot someone. Yeah. The very last thing. Uh-huh. I don't, I'm not into guns for that. Uh-huh. I don't, I never hope to use it. I don't ever hope to use my martial arts experience. Well, again, I could go into any place. I could stop at the gas station and thump everybody's head in there. Yeah. But do you think I want to do that or I would enjoy it? Like, no, not I get nothing it. out of that. I don't want that. You're not a psychopath. Good for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't, there's, there's not that. And like you said, it's just, you know, there's a lot of solutions and things and there's a lot of, you know, crazy stuff in the world. And to not take responsibility for your own safety and health is like, what a wild thing. It's like not taking responsibility for your health to me. Like, mm-hmm. ah, well, hopefully they got some pill that I can take that'll fix it. I was like, man, if right. you just went for a walk and yeah, didn't yeah. eat yeah. Cheetos. Bro, I actually like, put safety on the spectrum of health. Like mm-hmm. that's the that's the bottom rung of the health pyramid. Mm-hmm. Are you simply safe? Yeah. He- health aside, are you right. in immediate danger? Could you do anything about it? I mean, it's all the same line of thinking for me. Yeah, you know? yeah, very much so. It doesn't matter if you're healthy, if you're unable to defend yourself right you're dead now yeah yeah you were healthy <laughs> until the guy made you not <laughs> yeah, right? right and that's yeah and that's one of those things where it's like you know and that's why we teach medical stuff and do all that too i said well yeah, i think everyone should understand basic medical things yeah. you know at least some trauma care where it's like i can at least slow down some bleeding mm-hmm. if something happens to someone because right. most people again completely helpless you're a, a parent or grandparent or just somebody and you're watching the kid, and the kid falls off the swing, breaks their arm, and you got no idea what to do or how to help. Somebody yeah. cuts their leg, you know, doing something, they're out hiking, and their bones stick it to it, and you can't help at all. Right. Oh, man, maybe you should have took an hour, two hours to learn some stuff yeah. and gone over it a couple times and bought a tourniquet and played with it a few times. How do I do this thing? How do I do that? Yeah. Practice a little wound packing. Okay, what's a chest seal? Most people have no idea. Mm-hmm. Some simple things where it's like, hey, same same deal as the fire. It's like, I got so many medical kits you wouldn't believe. They're in every door of my vehicle and all that stuff. I hope to never use it. Yeah. Hope they expire before I get to yeah, use it. Yeah, I don't ever want to have <laughs> to use replace that it. stuff. Yeah. Yeah, odds are the, the, the suburban firefighter department where you live are a little bored. Swing by and 
ask them when the next class is. Yeah. I mean, it's, just, it's the simplest thing to be able to help in some of those situations. Like, mm-hmm. you know, staying alive, staying alive. I mean, <laughs> all the techniques are the most basic things, it seems like. Yeah. And what a help, you know. Well, and what a thing, obviously, you don't want to be in a situation where you could have helped and you didn't. Mm-hmm. And what a, an amazing thing. Again, you hope it never happens. But what if you get to say, hey, I was driving down the highway and all of a sudden these cars hit mm-hmm. and it turns out I saved someone's life. It's fucking awesome. I saved their life. Yeah. There was an eight-year-old girl and I pulled her out because I was physically able to and I knew what I was doing and I had a med kit and I put this tourniquet on and I saved her life. Wow. What a rush. What a thing. You saved your life. Now your life is worth it. Yeah. You might be a total POS other than that. <laughs> but now you're, hey, we're glad you're here. Yeah, score one for the good stuff. <laughs> yeah, side. yeah. Hey, man, you're, you're a detriment in a bunch of other right. ways. You're a total a-hole. <laughs> you know, you're some grumpy old man yeah, most of the yeah. time and fucking you know, right. whatever else. But today you earned it. Yeah, thanks, yeah. bud. Yeah. yeah, you can flick off whoever else the rest of the day in traffic. Um, last thing I usually bring up on here with folks, and I'll let you couch it however you want to couch it. I'll sit down with a BJJ black belt and I'll say, Give me advice for each of the belt levels. So if I'm a white belt, what's your thoughts? What's your advice? If I'm a blue belt, etc., get answered that way or set it relative to fighting, real fighting, quote unquote. However you want to couch it, give me some advice. Uh, I would say beginner level and white belt is you just have to hang in there. That's just about learning to survive. It's going to be hard and it's going to be tough. And a lot of that stuff is super complicated and it's not going to make sense most of the time, but it will. All right. And a lot of moves you're going to learn, especially depending on what schools you go to and things you're training. Sometimes it's like, it's my first day and we're working on some lapel thing. And I got no idea how I even got here because I can't slow down for the whole class just because you got there. Right. And it might not be like, well, there's easy fundamentals every day. There's a lot of schools that can't have that. Just know that it's all going to make sense and it's going to work for you. Okay? And then just stick it out. It's one of those long-haul deals where it's like, it might be where you don't see any payoff at all for a long time. But it will come. As someone who went through all that and has been there and done it and eventually gets a black belt, it's worth it. Days like today where I got to teach things and show other people stuff, it's so rewarding. And I told that to them in there. It's so rewarding for me to be able to share stuff with other people, right? I get a lot out of that. As a blue belt, I would say, mind your ego, you just got a blue belt. (laughs) Relax, okay? It's great, and that's an awesome step, but you're still just surviving in there. Don't think because you're attacking the white belts that you got it all figured out and you know, right? That's the one where most people quit at because they're like, ah, I got this. I got a little understanding of it. You're just beginning and you're getting like just that understanding of it. But to, especially nowadays, there's a lot of people who train and know stuff, right? So yeah, you know a couple of things, but to anybody who's a little serious, it's like you're still not yet a threat or uh, an attribute, you know, if you're helping other people and doing things yet. You're getting there, but it's, it's not, you know, maybe what you think it is. So, Take that part easy, right? There's a lot of blue belts to get ahead of themselves there. It's an awesome accomplishment and a great thing to be, but it's like, hey, you just made just made the corner, right? We're getting into it's again, it's a long race. 
We made the first corner and we're doing good. We're in the running. Okay. Hey, we might get there. We might even place, but we're just getting going. All right. The purple belt, man, purple belt. I say that's when you start to have fun. I mean, it's fun the whole time, but purple belt is when I really started having fun. Because you kind of start to understand and you sort of find what is, I think, that's the time when you find your jujitsu, right? Everyone's jujitsu is a little different, even under the same instructor and under the same school and the same system. Everyone's jujitsu is a little different. Purple belt is where you start to find yourself. Hey, what am I good at? What are my setups? What are my favorite submissions? How can I get there? And what can I do to improve on those things? Okay, this is my jujitsu. All right, that's what Purple Belt is. I'm starting to figure me out a little bit. I think I got some jujitsu, and I starting to understand that. But more importantly, I'm starting to figure out me and my jujitsu. Purple Belt starts to get a little fun because you're getting it figured out. Brown Belt is where you start to figure out the rest of jujitsu and the other parts of it. This is the jujitsu I'm not good at. These aren't my parts. I should fill in a little bit of these areas and get decent at it. I got to know this stuff because now at this level, everybody knows all the stuff. People start to know the different things and might not be able to force my game. What was my game at Purple Belt might not be able to be applied at Brown. Okay, especially when you're talking about competitive-wise and if you're going against other people, even just in the gym, other Brown Belts. Hey, guess what? You're a Purple Belt and you know some things, but I know what your game is. And I understand it, and I can shut that down, and you're not going to even get to that position to start to run your game. Now you got to figure out the rest of it and get in there, right, and, and start to get the little holes filled in and the, the parts that maybe aren't your jiu-jitsu particularly. And then black belt, you, it, it's, a, it's an interesting thing getting a black belt because for me it was kind of scary where now you have to know everybody's jiu-jitsu. There's kind of a lot expected of you. You're a black belt. You're supposed to know it all. And you got to be able to have answers for all that stuff and figure it out. So you kind of just get to start over and like, hey, I got to really fill this stuff in and understand it. But again, I think a lot of brown belts are, are at a black belt level and do it. And then black belt is where... You have to start to understand everybody's jiu-jitsu and you're getting it. You filled in what is your game, what is the rest of it. And now it's, and at least for me, it was a responsibility to, are you able to articulate and share this to other people too? Because you have stuck with it and you've gone through this process and you've earned this thing that is still, to me, very highly coveted. There's a lot of them now, right? There's a lot of black belts. There certainly are. Some of them are certainly much better than others because now you can just stick around for 12 years and get a black belt. You might not even be learning that much, but you paid your dues and you came three times a week and you're a good guy and we give you a black belt. Hey, that's just how that goes. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? But to me, that was like a... a a responsibility thing and a nice deal to not only know it and share it with other people and, and to, to help other people and to get better at it, but to be a spokesperson for it and promote it. And I think that's one of the biggest things. And I, I can't speak highly enough about jujitsu and what it's done for me. I, I mean, I 
do a lot of martial arts, really all of them. I do all of them, including weapons and other stuff and all kinds of, you know, different avenues of it. Um, but jujitsu is the one where you have to like really study and you have to like learn technique and this and that. I mean, I'm done professional boxing and professional mixed martial arts and I've fought all different styles and done all these things. And you can kind of get pretty good at those other ones with just like only knowing a couple of deals and you kind of specialize in this thing. But it's like to really understand jujitsu and get it, you get an understanding of not just the techniques and the moves, but of yourself and of other people and body awareness and positioning and mechanics. And like I told those guys in there, I was like, hey, buy an anatomy book and understand it. Like I understand how my body works a lot better now because of doing jujitsu. And it has helped me in so many other areas of my life, all right? Like, I move better. I understand. I under, get stretching. I get movement. I, like, my weight distribution is better. My balance and just my fluidity, right? I say it to people in private, and I say it on podcasts in front of anybody else because I don't really care. It's like, it makes you better at all the other parts of life. And said, if you're better at physical contact with one one person, I go, that might benefit you in a lot of ways in your life. If you understand manipulating another person's body, that might benefit you. That might score you some real points somewhere down the line. You're talking about uh, getting your leg out from underneath the sheets when the dog's in the bed? Yes. Is that what you're talking about? Or sweeping okay. the dog off the bed completely. <laughs> <laughs> it's a sweep. <laughs> it's a sweep and they got to go. And so I'll tell you what, the dog's got real good balance, so it's not easy. But mm -hmm. if you're a black belt, you probably <laughs> sweep that dog. <laughs> you might also be able uh, to have, have a good enough guard to keep it off the bed yeah, after yeah. that and not jump back on. Yeah, theoretically, yeah. Um, when did you get your black belt? I didn't ask you that. Uh, it was September of 2011. Yeah, this September will be two years. So, 2011 yeah. is two years ago? I mean, sorry, 2021. Okay. Yeah. I thought I hit a time warp thing or something. I, like, oh, I should have like five, three degrees on there now. No. Uh, yeah, 2021. So, yes, coming up will be two years. And the idea of the seemingly perfunctory stripes after that is that you are, to what your point was about black belt, in service of the art and you're sharing it and you're still involved, right? Yeah. That's what the stripes seem to signify, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and getting to that point, and, uh, you know, I think the belts beyond there are uh, a testament to staying with it and sticking in there and continuing to to do it at whatever level and ability you can do that, right? Because, man, to even get a coral belt means you've been doing this for a really, really long time. So if you're still doing it at that age you've been contributing and helping. You almost have, you almost can't not to have been around that long and to do it for that long. Right, right. And to get a red belt is like, man, you've put in so much effort and time into this and done it. And you've also applied some of the martial arts things and the lifestyle to be able to even live that long. Right, yeah. Because if you've had that for 50 years, I mean, even if you got it when you were 20, it's like, we well, are 70 years old. Yeah. If you're doing martial arts and you're 70 years old, probably took pretty decent care of yourself. Yeah, something you know? went right. So you've applied the martial arts lifestyle to the rest of your life. And I think that's a big deal, right? Martial arts has done a lot for me, but I think that's one of the biggest things is that it's allowed me to 
realize the importance of taking care of myself and, and my health and trying to push myself in a bunch of different ways and to expand myself and be the best version of me that I can be is the best thing I can do for not only myself, but for everybody else. For me to be the best version of me helps Gus out the most I can. That makes me the best friend for him I can be. For me to be the best version of myself helps you out the best I can because now I get to teach a seminar and do that and have a podcast and do those things. And it's like, okay, how can I expand and be better the next time and do that kind of a thing? You know, and that's just, I got that from martial arts and it's given me a, a direction in my life and, and really will be the big, a, a huge part of my life for most of it. And it wasn't something that I ever thought about or knew until I was 20 years old. And now it's taken me this far and I've been able to do it. So no matter how old you are, what age you're at, what level you're at and do it, I would say, you know, push yourself and, and see where as far as it can take you. Because no matter how far that is, you'll be further along than you were before and you'll be glad you did. Cool. Thanks, brother. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of the Pohada Podcast. And hey, if you're a regular listener, head on over to the Pohada Podcast on Instagram, where amongst the ridiculous memes, you'll find a link to the merch shop and be able to keep up with the disorganized going-ons of the show. And hey, before you go, here's a little preview of an upcoming episode. But uh, I finally get to the mat, 9 p.m., I roll with this dude. I had a purple belt at the time. And uh, the match goes 0-0. Excellent. And we go to overtime. The guy, as I recall, shot a double. I stuffed it. I got on top. I threatened a wrist lock. Very um, good. Very but good. he yelled, wrist lock in my ear. And I thought maybe <laughs> I was doing something illegal. So I kind of stopped. But I'd already got my points then, and it was sudden death, so I'd already won, uh, right? Yeah. And so I'm standing on the mat, facing my next opponent, and I get a tap on the shoulder, and I'm told I didn't win that match. And what had happened was um, the, the, co the opponent's coach went and griped directly to Kip Kohler. Asked him to put on a shirt. And then said, hey, <laughs> do you want to look at this videotape? And he, so he presented a videotape and said, hey, the ref missed points during the first round. And I saw, I looked at it, I still have the tape. And, okay, that might be true that, I don't know, he got a sweep or something early. And, but there was a moment where I almost had the dude's back. And they pulled us back into the ring. And yeah. I lost my hook. Right, so I didn't get my right. back points. So... Yeah. Point is, you can sit there and gripe about shit like that all the yeah. whole time. After you can't, the fact. Yeah, after is the fact. Preposterous. Yeah, you can't do that. And so, uh, it, not only preposterous, but also mm. unprecedented. I've never heard of that ever happening to anybody. 